Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right. Delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system. $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is April 29th, 2015, Wednesday. All right. It's about eight minutes after 2 p.m. If all that works out where you're at, we are, in fact, live. 855-566-3738 is how you can call into the show and participate in it directly. 855-566-3738. You can also go to the chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. You just uh, click on that. It's the one that says chat. Pretty simple. And uh, getting in there is pretty simple, too. If you've never been, you've got to pick a name, which would be your screen name. And you got to pick a password, and that's so nobody else uses your name. And then you got to put it in an email. And that just simply verifies, okay, you know, I don't know what it verifies, but 
the room requires it. I don't send out any emails, so don't worry about getting spammed. I don't even send out emails when people want me to send out emails. I, I'm I'm sorry, okay? I'm just not really great at uh email. You know, I'm I'm I get way behind an email and then I get overwhelmed by it and then I just say forget it. And and that's pretty much how email goes a lot of the times. I try to keep up and I try to read them all. I do read them all, but I mean I do try to reply to the people that say reply. Now, most of the stuff I get, nobody does say reply. They just send me things, and I appreciate it because I do read everything. But, uh, you know, if I don't get back to you, don't take it personally, okay? It's it's not you. It's not that, oh, I'm just not talking to you or whatever. It's got nothing to do with you, okay? It's me. It's just, you know, emails get by me, and they pile up pretty quick. And uh, there you have it. So, oh, hey, another way you can participate is uh, if you have Yahoo Instant Messenger. The screen name is ABRN Talk. Now, I'll tell you something else, too. That, if you really want to message me, if you really want to make sure that, you know, okay, I'm going to communicate with you. And yeah, you got to be there, and I got to be there, and all that has to work out. But I'm here quite a bit. And if you message AVRN Talk, chances are I'm going to see it before I see any email. Okay? So really, if if there's something you got to talk to me about, that's a really good way to do it. So, okay, let's get to the news, huh, shall we? Well, let's get let's catch up on some things here that have been on my screen for a while that I haven't gotten to. Veterans Affair. Yes, the Veterans Affairs. Uh, you know, they uh have had some bad press because they've been doing bad things. You know, they got rats running around their hospitals. Their hospitals are full of mold. Their doctors are probably the most incompetent on the planet. You know, their administrators don't give a damn. They just care about the bottom line. They're a bunch of bean counters. They'll let you sit there and they'll deny perfectly legitimate claims year after year after year until enough vets die to where they start letting you in. This is how it's run. You be, you you might not like that, okay? That might make you mad. Maybe you are one of the few people who've gotten into a VA hospital and actually got some kind of care. All right. You know what? You're lucky if you're not dead because hey, just getting in to get care in the VA hospital is uh, like magic, all right? But, hey, once you get in there, you're just in another hospital, pal. All right? You know, the place that kills, like, 250,000 people a year by, oops, accidents. And I'm telling you, military doctors and Veterans Administration doctors are the absolute worst. And, hey... I know there's always an exception. I'm sure there's a good military doctor. But I'll tell you what, 
too many of you've got this whole mash thing in your mind where, oh, these guys are really good, they really care, they really, you know, eh, not quite, no, no, no. Maybe back when doctors were being drafted into the military and they didn't have a choice, maybe the military had some decent doctors. But I'll tell you what, when I was in, oh, when I was at core school up at Great Mistakes, Naval Training Center. Uh, let me tell you something, man. Okay, that hospital was investigated by 60 Minutes. Oh, and but not so much because, see, when they got to the door, the Navy decided to put guards at the door and not allow them in. Yeah. And one of the main things they were in there about was the fact that, you know, the place had five elevators. Only one of them ever worked at a time. Yeah. So, you know, people had to get out of there. Forget about it. Plus, when I was there, guy died on the operating table. You know how? He was getting a vasectomy. Yeah. And the fine Navy doctor, whoops, accidentally cut his femoral artery and he bled to death on the table. Yeah. Hey, you know, you don't count that as incompetent? And that's just my personal knowledge, okay? You can read thousands and thousands and thousands of horror stories, folks. So don't think you lucked out when you get to go into a VA hospital, because you have not lucked out. What you've done is spin the bar- you know, spin the uh, the uh, chamber there. Okay, time to put it to your head and pull the trigger. Up, oh, click. Ooh, you luck out. You're not dead. That's what you do when you go into a VA hospital. Then again, that's pretty much what you do when you go into any hospital. But you go into a VA hospital, instead of one chamber having a bullet in, you got like three of them got bullets in it. So, enough bashing the VA for a minute. Let, let, let's get to what they feel is important. A year after news broke about the waiting list scandal at the Veterans Affairs uh, medical facility in Phoenix. Now, let me tell you something about that. It's not just at Phoenix. It's throughout the whole system. And the waiting list scandal, waiting list, okay? Look, this they can call it a waiting list now. You know what the waiting list is? They're waiting for these veterans to die so they don't have to fulfill their claims. That's what they're waiting on. And they've been doing this since at least... Vietnam. Now, I don't know how they treated uh, Korean veterans or World War II veterans. But I, well, I have an idea how they treated them because uh, I went to a VA hospital in uh, Burnettsville, New Jersey. And this place is nothing but a warehouse, folks. You've got hundreds of. And these are old guys. And this was back in 19, I guess, 80, what, three or four. You've got guys, hundreds of them, old guys. So they were probably from Korea or World War II at the time. And you've got hundreds of them in their little gowns shuffling down the hallways waiting for their medications. Do you know what that shuffle is? That's the Thorazine shuffle. That's right. They just stuff them on Thorazine, give them a chemical lobotomy, 
and keep them warehoused. That's what they did with them. I saw that again with my own eyes. So, you know, this whole waiting list is a nice euphemism for, yeah, we're going to hold you off until you die and we don't have to pay you anything, just like they did with all the Agent Orange victims. But anyway... The Fuhrer, Obama, finally visited the facility in March. And while they didn't quite roll out the red carpet for the president, they did clean the floors. And guess what? They spent $5,000 to do it. That's right. Yep. A record of the contract is posted at the usaspending.gov website and included the details is... The description, floor cleaning service for POTUS visit. So unless the president's coming, screw the floors. Wow. The contract posting also indicates that urgency required a non-competitive contract award and only one source was investigated to complete the work. Oh, inside job. News of the planned visit came out just days in advance of the president's trip. While at the Phoenix Medical Center, the president held a roundtable discussion where he heard from veterans and also announced the formation of the My VA Advisory Committee. Oh, there we go. We'll fix it with another committee. Good golly, man. You know, this is the thing, man. Surprise visit? Not quite, huh? Yeah, we don't care about the floors. You know, leave the rat crap all over the floors until the president comes. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. All right, let's get to some more stuff. So, you think the Republicans are going to save the day because, oh, wait a minute, they all ran for office, remember? We're going to get rid of Obamacare. We're going to do something about this amnesty. Yeah, oh, vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. So you did. Yeah, so you did. And the majority in the House of Representatives went up. The Republicans gained control of the Senate. And then, quickly, they said, oh, uh, well, gee, uh, guess what? We're not going to do a damn thing about amnesty because we're just a bunch of scumbag liars. Ha, 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 ha. We got in here, and uh, now we'll do whatever the hell we please, which is cashing checks and having fancy lunches and brokering laws for corporations. Well, congressional Republicans now, oh, here's the other campaign promise. Congressional Republicans are considering plans that would allow Americans to temporarily keep their Obamacare policies and subsidies, even if the Supreme Court strikes down those subsidies in June. Now, for those of you that don't know what's going on here, whoever wrote Obamacare, okay, because I'm not going to say Congress did, because I know they didn't. 
Because, well, if you wrote something, you'd have to have read it, right? Because I know of no way you can write something without reading it. And they all admit they didn't read it. So nobody read it, so nobody wrote it, so it came from somewhere else. Oh, let's take a guess. Perhaps the insurance industry? Yeah. But anyway, when they wrote it, what they wanted in their plans, okay, their grand plan was to have every state operate their own exchange. All right? And I suspect the insurance companies wanted it this way to keep a little buffer between the federal government just running the whole thing. Because even though they, you know, pay off the federal government, work with the federal government, conspire with the federal government against the American people, you know, they still are a little leery that the federal government is like a snake and can turn around and bite you any time. So the best thing is to not give it the chance. So they wanted to set up every state having their own Exchange, But you see, the federal government, the Supreme Court's already ruled long ago in U.S. versus, uh, or yeah, U.S. versus New York, or New York versus U.S., I forget which it is, but it's one or the other, decided that, look, the federal government cannot just march into a state and say, look, here's what you're going to do. But it also, in the same ruling, said that the federal government can, in fact, entice a state to do what it wants with the subsidies and money and whatever else. Okay? But it can't just order them to do anything. It can bribe them. So, they write Obamacare, and they say, okay, every state, we want every state to have an insurance exchange. But we realize that that you know, might not happen, so we also have the federal exchange for states that don't do it. However, while they want them to do that, they can't tell them to do that. So they write into the law that, okay, if you are in a state-run exchange, you get all these subsidies, Right? So when the insurance company says, okay, your health insurance is going to cost uh, $400 a month. Well, (laughs) okay, so I guess I'll have to quit my job and go on welfare and everything else because I can't afford $400 a month. Oh, well, you fall beyond the, the limit here. So if you are in a state exchange you get a subsidy of $350 a month, meaning the federal government will give the insurance company $350 every month for your policy, and you will give the insurance company only $50 every month. Why would they write it like this? Well, they wrote it like this on purpose. Now, some of the arguments is, no, they didn't mean this. They didn't mean that. No, they didn't mean this. Yes, they did mean this, and they meant it because they have to mean it. They had to come up with some sort of carrot, some sort of stick. They had to try to encourage the states to open up their own exchanges. And as we have seen here in Oregon, uh, even when they try, sometimes they are so corrupt that they can't manage to do it. They can manage to steal 300 and something million dollars trying to do it, but they're all their buddies get paid and nothing gets done. And if you're in Oregon, you're on the federal exchange. Well, 
the stick and the carrot is this. The federal government figured, well, the states, once they tell their people, oh, you know what, we ain't doing that, and uh, you're just going to have to pay $400 a month for your insurance, because there are no subsidies, because they only apply to state-run exchanges. They do not apply to the federally-run exchange. And this was a ploy to get all the states, they figured the people would give them enough heat and say, hey, wait a minute, those people over in that state that got an exchange, they're getting all these subsidies and we're getting nothing. You better do something. You better get an exchange going. Well, that didn't happen because everybody in America is basically saying, pound sand about your Obamacare. I ain't getting it. I don't care what you say. Yeah. Except for, you know the obedient ones that you know, oh boy, I better go do what they say, I better do it right now because I need to get into that hospital because you know, someday I might want to get dead real quick, so I need a place to go to do that, and hey the hospital is the perfect place for that so, if you want a place to go, you know you figure, hey, it's time to pack it in, I've had enough, I want to die, you need Obamacare Because you need access to that hospital, because they'll help you out. So now, it's in front of the Supreme Court. Somebody's brought this up and said, now wait a minute. You can't give these people subsidies if they're on the federal exchange. That's a violation of the law, and it is. So they argue on the other side, well, that's not the intent of the law. That's not what they meant to do. It's an accident. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it was a mistake. It was a No, it was not a mistake, and it was not an accident. They did it on purpose, and they did it because of U.S. versus New York. Okay? They aren't trying to entice the states to open exchanges. Now that, like, the majority of states have not done so, It's a little bit of a problem for the federal government because the states basically told the federal government, pound sand, keep your subsidies, we don't care what you say. Uh Uh-oh. See, this is where communism always falls off the rails, folks. When everybody won't go along with it, it falls off the rails. That's why they're so, you know, violent about getting everybody involved in communism because they know if everybody's not in it, it won't work. Because you see, the people that aren't in it, the people that are in it are going to look at them and go, hey, wait a minute. Those, how, those people over there that aren't participating in this wonderful communism uh, utopia, how come they're doing better? How come they got a nicer car? How come they got more money? How come they got more freedom? How come they're doing better and they're happier than we are? Wait a minute. Yeah. But you see, if there isn't anybody not going along with it, and everybody's equally miserable, everybody just settles on in and says, Oh, well, I guess it's just the way it is. This is how communism works. But your Republicans that said they were going to get rid of Obamacare are now finding a way to preserve it. There are already more than half a dozen competing plans under discussion in response to the King versus Bur- 
Burwell case, which will determine if people who buy coverage on the federal health care exchange are entitled to subsidies. The plaintiffs in this landmark case say people who get subsidies through the federal exchange are getting them illegally, as the Affordable Care Act says that such aid is available only through state-established health care exchanges. But the Obama administration is arguing that when the bill passed, Congress intended for the subsidies to help everyone who enrolls in the program. No, they didn't. They were trying to use this stick and carrot, and they don't want anybody to know that this is how they do business on a regular basis. This is not new. You can check almost every law that anything that mandates the state to do something or appears to mandate the state to do something has always got sticks and carrots attached to them. You'll get this if you do, and you won't get that if you don't. It's always there because this is how they do business. This time, they just got caught. Why do you think you are why do you think every state in the union requires that now you have a social security number attached to your driver license application? Why do you think that is? Let me help you. Because the federal government said that's how we want it and you'll do it. And the some states said no, we won't do it. And the federal government said, oh, okay, then we're not going to give you any federal road money. Okay, 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 we'll do it. We'll screw our people over. We don't care. Just give us the money. That's what Michigan did. They were the last holdout. Yep. And the federal government had to play hardball with them publicly and say, we will cut off all your federal road money. If you don't do this. Yeah. So there you go. So the Obama administration is lying. That was not the intent of Congress. And besides, we have a little problem there too. Seeing as how every congressman has admitted, well, we didn't read it. Because they weren't allowed to read it. Nazi Pelosi publicly stated in front of everybody on television that, well, you've got to vote it in and then you can find out what's in it. If you don't know what's in it, how can you possibly have any intent as to what it's supposed to do? Hmm? How can you have any intent if you don't know what's in it? I don't know what this is. I'm just going to vote on it. Well, you're not voting with intention. You're just voting. Republicans hope to have just one plan in place when the Supreme Court makes its final ruling in June. They say the plan might make or break GOP candidates in the 2016 election. You see, folks, it doesn't matter about doing what's right. It doesn't matter about anything except getting re-elected. More than 7.5 million people could lose the subsidies they need to finance their health care plans. Huh. Conservative lawmakers are bucking against a backup plan, however, as they want to repeal Obamacare altogether. There you go. I think it will be an extraordinarily difficult, said House Deputy Majority Whip Tom Cole. 
of Republican from Oklahoma about coming to a final plan. That's why I'm glad I'm just a humble appropriator. What? Good God. You know, these people are pathetic. I mean, honestly, I, I just... You know, folks, if somebody... If you actually hired somebody like this to work at your business... How how long you figure they last with the attitude these scumbags have? It's unbelievable, folks. You know what? They shouldn't even have to worry about re-elections because the American people really ought to get in the idea that, you know what, I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. Whoever you are, you're out of here. One term and you are out of here. I'm voting for whoever's next. And there's always, oh, you, you can't vote Democrat because you're a died-in-a-wool Republican? <laughs> okay. There's always somebody in the primary. There's always somebody else. Okay? Vote for whoever that is. You know, that's the whole thing, folks. You've got to get this mindset that I don't care who you are. I don't care what party you are because you're both the same anyway. Right, okay, so the Democrats passed Obamacare, and the Republicans are now trying to save it. Yeah, okay. We'll take a break and we'll be back in a bit.
Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one of four. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
All right. Welcome back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. Uh, it's the 29th of April. It's Wednesday, 2015. And uh, it's about 243 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. Oh, let's see. Uh, folks were guessing in the chat room. The first song was Got My Mojo Working, and that version was by a great blues pianist called Vince Weber. He's a German guy. Okay. And then the second one was Nobody Knows, and that was by H. Bomb Ferguson. I played him several times. I played Vince Weber several times, too. Anyway, that's who it was. Anyway, uh, the uh, the uh, grammar police are in the chat room, so watch out, folks, when you go in there. <laughs> uh, I, hey, by the way, uh, I don't usually say anything, but I will because people worry. Because, you know, I don't show up for my show right away. People think, okay, that's it, the black helicopters, and have come and uh, got him or killed him or whatever. So, uh... Tomorrow is actually my birthday, and I was thinking I may not do any radio tomorrow. I, I mean, the other shows will all be on, uh, but I'm just thinking I might sit it out. I might not even do a show Friday. I don't know. Uh, I might just take a couple days off from radio and uh, get back to it. You know, and yes, 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 the birthday is just an excuse, but, eh, you know, it's... You know, it doesn't... I, I've done radio for a long time, and I pretty much uh, am pretty consistent with doing my shows when I'm supposed to do them. And, you know, like anything else, no matter how much you love something, sometimes, hey, you know, even guys who play sports and they love the sports they're in, obviously, or they wouldn't have got as good at it as they are, you know, they have an off-season, they have off-days, they don't play every day, you know, so I'm thinking about it. Maybe, maybe not. So... If I'm here, you'll know it. If I'm not, don't think the black helicopters came and got me, okay? And yes, I will be on the air tonight, though, uh, because, you know, I have to, because Melissa's on as co-host, and she demands to be on on Wednesday nights or else. So, we'll have that. All right, let's get on with some stuff. Here's Here's a good... You know, oh, well, anyway, uh, let me get back to where I was here. Just wrap this up a little bit. It's pretty much wrapped up. The bottom line is the fact that the Republican Party, the one that said, we're going to repeal Obamacare if you elect us, and you did elect them, now are working to save Obamacare. All right? Yeah, they're working to save Obamacare. Unbelievable. These people are unbelievable traitors, liars, deceivers, betrayers. It just kind of goes on and on and on. All right, let's do... Um, this is a good question, and I, I kind of skipped around. Okay. Uh, this issue the other day. 
But here is a actual article. Is the U.S. food supply cursed? Uh-huh. Yeah. See, people are starting to notice. They're starting to go, hey, well, wait a minute. This is seeming, oh, I don't know, kind of biblical. Yeah. Why are so many catastrophes hitting U.S. food production? This week, we have learned that more than 7 million turkeys and chickens have already been killed as a result of a devastating bird flu outbreak here in the United States. Hear much about that, did you? This particular strain of the bird flu has already spread to the states of Minnesota, Iowa, California, Arkansas, Idaho, Kansas, Missouri, North Dakota, and Oregon, South Dakota, Washington, and Wisconsin. And scientists are mystified as to why it is moving so rapidly. But what we do know is that this flu has the potential to kill an entire flock of chickens or turkeys in just 48 hours. This pandemic is quickly becoming a major national crisis all by itself. Have you heard about that? Or have we heard more about, oh, Hillary Clinton says, oh, Hillary Clinton did this, oh, it's like dancing with the stars. This pandemic if you if you combine this pandemic with all the other disasters hitting our food supply, a very troubling picture is emerging. Could it be possible that the U.S. food supply is cursed? Well, golly, folks, uh, mm, what do we got going on in the United States, huh? Due to the worst drought in the recorded history of the state, much of California is turning back into a desert. And considering the fact that California produces nearly half of all the fresh produce in the entire nation, that's a very frightening thing. Prices for many fruits and vegetables have already gone up substantially in our grocery stores. Yeah, but don't worry about it. Inflation's like 3%. Sure it is, folks. The multi-year drought in the southwest United States has also had a crippling impact on many ranchers. At this point, the size of the U.S. cattle herd is the smallest that it has been since the 1950s. And the price of beef has doubled since the last recession. Over the last couple of years, porcine epidemic diarrhea wiped out approximately 10% of the entire pig population in the United States. This particular plague seems to have subsided, at least for now. But scientists tell us that it could come back strong at any moment. And you know why? Why? Why do scientists say it could come back strong any moment? Because those scientists know that all the antibiotics that the farmers have given the pigs to stop this diarrhea haven't really killed it. And that the uh, bacteria or virus or whatever, well, actually the bacteria, because if, they, if it would have been a virus, none of their antibiotics would have any effect. So the bacteria, they know it is mutating. And once it mutates back to the point where it will be viral again, it'll start killing even more, even faster, and it'll be harder to stop. 
if they can stop it at all with antibiotics, which they may not be able to. And God forbid they ever do anything natural. Well, you're a farmer. That just wouldn't be right, would it? As my friend Max Saville wrote about the other day, the sardine population off the West Coast has declined by 91% since 2007. This is having a devastating effect on the food chain in the Pacific Ocean. Speaking of the Pacific, a whole host of other sea creatures appear to be dying off in large numbers as well. But I'm sure that has nothing to do with Fukushima. Down in Florida, citrus greening disease has hit the citrus industry extremely hard. The price of Florida oranges has approximately doubled over the past 12 years. And crops keep getting even smaller every year. The big squeeze is on in the citrus industry, and it isn't expected to lessen anytime soon. Florida growers have yielded far fewer oranges over the past decade due to the citrus greening, resulting in less juice in the market and fewer dollars in their pockets. Everything starts and ends with citrus greening, said Fritz Roca, a University of Florida agricultural economist at the Southwest Florida Research and Education Center in Imokali. For the next several years, citrus greening will still be the focus of attention. A plague known as the TR4 fungus has hit global banana production in a big way. According to CNBC, this nightmare fungus may eventually completely wipe out the variety of bananas that we commonly eat today. Banana lovers take note. The world's supply of the fruit is under attack from a fungus strain that could wipe out the popular variety that Americans eat. It's a very serious situation, said Randy Poltz. A uh, professor of plant pathology at the University of Florida, who in 1989 originally discovered a strain of Panama disease called TR4 that may be growing into a serious threat to U.S. supplies of the fruit and Latin American producers. There's nothing at this point that really keeps the fungus from spreading, he said in an interview with CNBC. On top of that, now we have a major bird flu outbreak. According to USA Today, 3.8 million hens will be destroyed at one farm in Iowa in an attempt to keep this flu from spreading. Gee, if this bird flu continues to spread in states such as Iowa, we could have a nightmare scenario on our hands. Most people don't realize this, but almost one out of every five eggs that we eat comes from that state. Yeah, unfortunately, this new outbreak is extremely puzzling to our scientists. At this point, they really don't know why it's spreading so fast. Oh, let me help you, okay, scientists? Do you know why it's puzzling? Because they're all paid off by the agri-businesses, and they don't want to look at the feed. No, they don't want to look at the feed that's tainted. It's the GMOs, you dimwits, that you feed the chickens, you morons. I mean, what kind of an idiot can't see this, huh? But they're not going to look that way, folks, because if they look that way, uh-oh, 
that could say, well, wait a minute, what's that mean? Well, that means GMOs are diminishing the bird's immune system's ability to fight off these kind of flus? You mean, wow, so uh, could a chicken be, uh, well, hey, could you use the chicken in the coal mine analogy? Yeah, remember how they put canaries in coal mines and when they dropped dead it was time to get out of the coal mine because you were running out of air? Yeah, and they'd find out first because, you know, they got little lungs and all that and they, they got to have better air and all that to live. Gee, could the GMOs be causing this for the chickens and could the chickens be a sign of what's going to be happening to people? Oh, this is puzzling for scientists because the scientists are nothing but prostitutes that work for agribusiness. Have we ever seen a time when so many major catastrophes have hit our food production all at once? It appears that this is a perfect storm of sorts, and we all get to feel the pain of this onslaught when we visit our local grocery stores. So, are we witnessing a convergence of unrelated coincidences? Or could it be possible that there is another explanation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there is another explanation. And the explanation is GMO feed, okay? GMO feed is what's doing it, folks. That's what's happening. And now, am I dismissing a biblical curse? No, I'm not. But how does, well, hey, how does, uh, it's not up to me how God decides to create pestilence. But we're having it. We're having pestilence. We're having drought. We're having famine. Gee, is this starting to sound a little biblical to you? And I wonder why. Oh, my. Let's see. Last night, I just went through uh, 19 facts about abortion in America. Yeah. Over 3,000 babies a day we kill here in the United States. A million a year. And 80-something percent of them are done for convenience. Then we've got the homos, and we know how that always works out in every civilization. And it's not just God whacking the joint because he doesn't like homos like at Sodom and Gomorrah. No, it's also just their way. They bring destruction by their lifestyle because it's deviant and it's a public health hazard and they were a contributing factor to the fall of Rome. Well, my, there's two. Uh, hey, what's next? Oh, yes, that's right. The persecution of Christians. You're not allowed to say in Jesus' name, when you pray in the U.S. military or in a public school, you're not allowed to bring a Bible into a public school. The federal government of this country has basically outlawed Christianity in every public setting. Well, hey, that's three out of three. 
Yeah. Hey, but, you know, Americans can say, ah, that's crazy talk. That couldn't happen here. Well, you know what? I'm sure the Pharaoh said the same thing. Hey, that can't happen to me, baby. I'm the Pharaoh. Yeah? Well, meet the real God. Pharaoh. You know, so, hey, you know, buckle up, folks. It's just another reason for you to get prepared. Best you can, and you better hurry. Anyway, I'll be back again tonight. We got a good day coming up after this, so stay tuned. And as always, thanks for listening. Okay, that's not the right music. Well, who's the idiot producer on this show anyway? Get the right music going, monkey. There we go. tragedy, one crime, tells us how a whole system works behind its democratic facade and helps us understand how much of the world is run for the benefit of the powerful and how governments often justify their actions with lies. The film you're about to see is a shocking, almost incredible story. A government calling itself civilized, tricked and expelled its most vulnerable citizens so that it could give their homeland to a foreign power for a military base. This was all done in high secrecy and this same government and its successors then watched its citizens starve to death. It watched them despair and take their own lives while at the same time ministers and their officials mounted a campaign of deception that went all the way up to the Prime Minister. That government was a British government whose policies are continued today. This report is about a faraway people most of you will have never heard of, and yet the lies covering the injustice done to them will be all too familiar.
Diego Garcia, the main island of the Chagos group in the Indian Ocean, it was once a phenomenon of natural beauty and peace, a paradise. Today it is one of America's biggest military bases in the world. There are more than 2,000 troops, two bomber runways, 30 warships, and a satellite spy station. B-1 and B-52 long-range bombers extended their reach from the British base at Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. From here, the United States has attacked Afghanistan and Iraq. The Pentagon calls it an indispensable platform for policing the world. This will launch right three o'clock. Diego Garcia is a British colony. It lies midway between Africa and Asia, one of a group of unique coral islands. This is rare film taken by missionaries before the Americans came in the 1960s. 2,000 people lived in the Chagos Islands, a gentle Creole population originally from Africa and India, whose communities dated back to the late 18th century. They were thriving villages, a school, a hospital, a jail, a church, a railway, and above all, a benign, undisturbed way of life. Unknown to the islanders, all this was about to end. A conspiracy was underway between the governments of Britain and the United States. The year is 1961. In this film, never seen before, the man on the right is Rear Admiral Grantham of the US Navy. His visit to Diego Garcia marked the beginning of a top-secret Anglo-American survey of the island for a military base so vast that it would cost over a billion dollars. The Chagos Islands were then governed from Mauritius, a thousand miles away. When Mauritius got its independence from Britain in 1968, it was on condition that it would lay no claim to the Chagos Islands. Hidden from Parliament and the US Congress, the deal was this. 
The Americans wanted the island, in their words, swept and sanitized. An entire population was declared expendable. All of them were to be deported. The British and American authorities implemented a policy decision that was aimed at depriving that community in the Chagos from basic supplies. No milk, no dairy products, no oil, no sugar, no salt, no medication, no more of the things you use in life. The effect of the policy was to terrify many of them into leaving. They were also told their islands might be bombed. In the spring of 1971, Sir Bruce Greatbatch, KCVO, CMG, MBE, Governor of the Seychelles, gave the order that all the dogs on Diego Garcia were to be killed. These were much-loved pets, and the horror of their killing was taken as a warning by the islanders. Almost a thousand pets were rounded up and gassed using the exhaust fumes from American military vehicles. I mean, the relationship with our pets should be the same, whether you are Chagosian or whether you are British. And, uh, uh, and uh, they, they were absolutely destroyed by <clears throat> the fate reserved to their dogs. And, and many of them told me, <clears throat> In no, in no uncertain words, they were taught that any objection to the depopulation, they would suffer the same fate. Perhaps the lowest trick was that those islanders needing to go to Mauritius were prevented from returning home. <laughs> The remaining population were summoned to the administrator's office and told that their homeland had been sold and that those who remained will be loaded onto ships and expelled. In this photograph, people are standing in silence, stunned. They were forced onto this vessel, the SS Nordver. They were allowed to take only one suitcase. Sir Bruce Greatbatch insisted that the horses took pride of place on deck. The women and children were made to sleep in the hold on a cargo of bird fertilizer, bird shit. 
Batulanu da pensil matla. Quand tu tes enfants qu'elles disent non, ils ont mis pensil matla. Nous-mêmes qui tuez animaux, nous-mêmes bantra gauchin, femmes enfants, nous qui tuez animaux le nouveau. The first port of call was the Seychelles, where they were herded from the boat. This is a rusting monument to their agony. From here they were marched up the hill to a prison that has since been demolished. They were kept in cells until they were transported to Mauritius. This is Port Louis, the capital of Mauritius. Here they were dumped on the docks, bewildered and terrified. Some of them stayed on the, on the docks, waiting for the next ship to take them back home, you see. And uh, there was never to be a, a ship to take them back home. They were taken to this housing estate, which was then derelict and had been taken over by animals. This was hell. I went and see them. This is hell. What way was it hell, do you think? It, it was a, it's the, the filth. No water in those houses and uh, no sanitation. Oh, it was really easy. And the children, they had no clothes. The children were absolutely as if they'd been rolled over in ash and earth. And, and then when it rained, it was you know, water everywhere. The islanders began to die, not only from poverty, but from what they call sadness. Lizette, now in her 60s, lost two children. They would sing their way through life. Here, I mean, they, they, they wept their way through life, and they're still weeping, you see. And there were, as you mentioned, so many cases of suicides. But there were so many cases of children, you know, not receiving proper care and dying in hospital. I know the case of one lady who lost two children within two or three months and he, she wasn't able even to, uh, uh, to, 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 to perform the funerals of, of her child because she didn't have the money necessary for that and it was the state who took care of it. The hospital, from the hospital, the child was taken to the cemetery, you see. Do you realize what sort of a trauma, what sort of, of experience this is for, for an old lady? And this old lady is still weeping 
to be able to go back home. By the end of 1975, the secret expulsion of the people of the Chagos Islands was complete. A survey of their conditions in exile told of 26 families that had died together in poverty, of nine suicides, of young girls forced into prostitution in order to survive. The report gave these examples. Elaine and Michelle Musa, mother and child, committed suicide. Leonie Rangasamy, prevented from going back, drowned herself. Tareen Chateau, no job, no roof, committed suicide. This was a glimpse of the suffering inflicted by the British government. And yet, in a letter dated 16th of August, 1976, a Foreign Office official wrote, and I quote, Although we have no information about deaths, some deaths are bound to have occurred in the normal course of events. most British people know Mauritius as an exotic holiday destination, especially for honeymooners. They almost never see the slums of the exiled people of the Chagos, who are also British citizens. This is filmed taken in 1982 of a family of Chagos Islanders in exile in Mauritius. Here all 25 of them sleep in shifts in one squalid room with the baby in a cardboard box. We found the same family living in the same shack in the same terrible conditions. They still sleep on the floor. The rain still pours in. The toilet is still a hole in the ground. They are still so poor that they often go hungry. What was done to these people is today defined in international law as a crime against humanity. What has changed since they were last filmed 22 years ago? Your wife, she, she died, is that right? Yes, yeah. It's not nostalgia, it's more than that. It's like um, missing even the air that you breathe, missing the environment that you're used to, missing your home, missing your cats and your dogs, and your pets, which were all destroyed. This is a 
Olivia Bancourt, leader of the Chagos Islanders in exile. When he was a boy, he promised his mother, Rita, that he would lead the fight for justice for his people. Olivia knows all too well their suffering. So you've lost a sister and three, four brothers? Four brothers, yeah. Tell me what happened to them. I have uh, one brother who had died with uh, hard drugs. I have two other brothers who had died with uh, alcohol. My, my sister just put a fire on, on her. She had been very discouraged with the life. She committed too? Yeah, 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 she died, yeah. In 1982, the Chagos Islanders, now desperate, demonstrated in the streets of Mauritius. This embarrassed the British government into giving them a derisory compensation, which came to less than £3,000 per person. This didn't even pay their debts, and to get this money, many believed they were tricked into signing away their right to return home. Après, il ce qui continue, signer ce qui va continuer, mais le pouce, et il y a qui en bas, mais jamais je prononce mon droit, ce qui pour moi. Et ni moi, ni mes enfants ici. Si il dit, moi, je peux signer mon droit, je renonce mon île, je ne suis pas pour moi, je ne suis pas pour la vie, mais je ne suis pas pour moi. Jamais je ne prononce mon droit. It was entirely improper, unethical, dictatorial to have the Chagossian put the thumbprint on an English legal drafted document where the Chagossian, who doesn't read nor speak any English, let alone legal English, is made to renounce basically all his rights as a human being. Renouncing their rights was precisely what the British government wanted them to do. They could then be forgotten. That same year, the government spent two billion pounds defending the rights of the Falkland Islanders, who are white. My people, the Queen was saying, uh, Christmas broadcast. Uh, so you send them 2,000 uh, 2, inhabitants of the Falklands, and you've got 2,000 people with Jagos. One out, the other one, we come to your rescue. Come on. Come on. You are, you are all English. You're all British. <laughs> come on. What's the difference? Where's your sense of fair play, my, my fellas? <laughs> Where's your sense of fair play? Mm -hmm. That could be a breakthrough, yeah, From a tiny lockup in the poorest section of Port Louis, Mauritius, Olivia Bancor, an electrician, has taken the struggle across the world. And here you're with Nelson Mandela. Yeah, I, I am with Nelson Mandela, an example of, of, of human rights fighter, you see. Uh, we compare our struggle to the struggle of Nelson Mandela, who had been in the 1990s, the islanders' struggle took a dramatic turn with the discovery of these documents in the public record office in London. Here was the evidence that they and their supporters were looking for.
These long-forgotten secret official files revealed the full scale of the conspiracy and the cynicism that drove it. The conspiracy got underway with the creation of a fake colony called the British Indian Ocean Territory, or BIOT. The sole purpose of creating this colony was to kick the people out. And to do it, the Foreign Office invented a fiction. They said the islanders didn't really belong to the Chagos, but were merely temporary contract workers. Foreign Office Memorandum, July 1965. People were born there, and in some cases their parents were born there too. The intention is, however, that none of them should be regarded as being permanent inhabitants of the islands. So how would they be regarded? The legal position of the inhabitants would be greatly simplified from our point of view, though not necessarily from theirs, if we decided to treat them as a floating population. This long-forgotten British government film shot in 1957 reveals the duplicity. Clearly, the Foreign Office knew the people of the Chagos were anything but temporary workers. Out of a total of 100 or more little islands, only some half a dozen are permanently inhabited, partly by people from Mauritius and the Seychelles, but mostly by men and women who have been born and brought up on these fragments of land. It is the story of their lives which this film tells. The British tried to claim, and I just quote one of their documents, that the Chagos had no indigenous or settled population. Nazi. Back in London, some officials began to worry about being caught out. Foreign Office Memo, November 1965. There is a civilian population. In practice, however, I would advise a policy of quiet disregard. In other words, let's forget about this one until the United Nations challenges on it. One can only say that they were looking at another prize, and this was considered a, a, a price that was worth paying, because in reality there would be no objections and they would get away with it. And all they were concerned about, the documents show this quite clearly, all they were concerned about was whether they'd be found out. In that same month, the British representative at the United Nations, F.W.D. Brown, was instructed to lie to the General Assembly that the Chagos Islands were uninhabited when the United Kingdom first acquired them. I must remind you that this has been done in violation of the United Nations Charter. This is why it was done so uh, 
in absolute discretion and using lies. I'm not mincing my words. They were lies, damn lies. What the official documents show is not just a trail of lies, but an imperious attitude of brutality and contempt. In August of 1966, Sir Paul Gore Booth wrote, We must surely be very tough about this. The object of the exercise was to get some rocks which will remain ours. There will be no indigenous population except seagulls. At the end of this is a note handwritten by Dennis Greenhill, later Baron Greenhill of Harrow. Unfortunately, along with the birds go some few Tarzans or Men Fridays, whose origins are obscure, and who are being hopefully wished on to Mauritius, etc. When you look at the documents, here you've got some of your former colleagues talking about, well, we just need some rocks because in all that's on it are a bunch of Tarzans and a few Janes and, and all that. Uh, well, yes. I mean, I, I know the person that you're referring to and the, and the uh, minute that you're referring to. Yeah. Uh, and I have the greatest respect for him. He's, he's dead now. Uh, and I'm sure that if he had any clue that, that his throwaway remarks would have become public, he would never have written that. Uh, because I don't believe he's that sort of person, frankly. Uh, you know, people... People put things in minutes on, on official papers that they don't really mean. The conspirators now began to get the wind up. A senior official wrote, This is really all fairly unsatisfactory. We propose to certify up to 240 islanders, more or less fraudulently, as belonging somewhere else. This all seems difficult to reconcile with the sacred trust of the United Nations Charter. The sacred trust, he refers to, obliges Britain to safeguard the human rights of its citizens in a dependent territory. His warning counted for little. One official offered a way round the problem. He wrote, Yes, yes, I've got it right in front of We do not regard the United Kingdom as bound by such a rule. In this respect, we are able to make up the rules as we go along and treat the inhabitants of BIOT as not belonging to it in any sense. This same official summed up the whole charade in the subtitle of one of his reports, Maintaining the Fiction. Do you think they were aware of what they were doing to the people, that the trauma that was about to descend on the Chagossians? These boys in the colonial office, did they really care very much about... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, you know, you had your standard of living, you kept to it. You're, you're pink gin at lunchtime and... <laughs> so they were just the natives? The, the natives, yes. Unfortunately. The cover-up went right to the top of government. It was drawn up by the Foreign Secretary, Michael Stewart, in the form of a secret minute sent to the Prime Minister on July the 25th, 1968. 
In this document, Stewart reveals that he is fully aware that Diego Garcia has a population going back at least two generations. He proposes that the government lie to the world, but there is no indigenous population. On April the 26, 1969, Wilson's private secretary wrote to Stewart, saying that the Prime Minister approved the plan. The documents show that it was decided at the highest level by the Prime Minister, most particularly Harold Wilson. He knew very well that there was a population and they were going to be removed. The problem is that this is policy made almost on the back of an envelope. There's no democratic input. Uh, nobody was asking questions, nobody was knocking on the door, nobody was there to represent the interest of the islanders. They just didn't exist as a political factor to take into account. Dennis Healy was Defence Secretary in the same government. When we asked Mr Healy for an interview, he replied, I fear I have no memories of the Chagos Archipelago. Sorry. Lord Healy's uh, letter about not remembering the Chagos Archipelago. Bollocks. Absolutely. Mm. He's a, an acute and intelligent man. On May the 6th, 1969, Healy's private secretary wrote this letter to 10 Downing Street. It confirmed that the defense secretary had read Stewart's plan and agrees with its recommendations. In Washington, a parallel conspiracy was taking place, also in high secrecy. The object was to keep the expulsion of the islanders from Congress. So payment for the lease of the islands was disguised as a $14 million discount on a Polaris nuclear missile about to be supplied to the Royal Navy. Is there ever a time when people in power consider the consequences of the imposition of that power? Because the consequences for the population of Diego Garcia were disastrous. The circumstances involved how many? Uh, 2,000 people. 2,000 people. Who'd been living there since the end of the 18th century. Well, a fair number of them, if I remember, were, were uh, external laborers. Well, been that, that's been shown to be untrue. The British government tried to represent them as that. They were an indigenous six, that, four, three, four generations. As I said, I went through this record some years ago, mm. and at that time, it was said that these were important laborers to some degree. We found in the National Archives in Washington this letter from the American ambassador in Mauritius. February the 1st, 1972, Ambassador Brewer to Washington. It is, of course, absurd to imply that Diego Garcia had no fixed population there is no question that the island has been inhabited since the 18th century. I don't think there's any doubt at all that the Americans who visited the islands to reconnoitre as to whether this was a suitable base area, they saw that there was a functioning civilization on the island. They could not have been unaware 
of the settled human communities that they found. So when Schlesinger said they didn't know, they'd looked into it, that just... No, amnesia, at best. That's all you can say to that. It was not true. They knew. There's another... And they collaborated together on how do we get rid of these people? How do we lie uh, that they're simply contract laborers? When many of them, their fathers, their grandfathers, perhaps even further back, were in the cemetery. If you take a decision in Washington and London and it devastates the lives of several thousand people on the other side of the world, isn't that something that should be called to account no matter how long? Amongst the various activities of the British and the American government in the 20th century, not to mention the 19th century, this was a relatively small matter. If one goes back to British behavior, for example, in World War II, uh, the attack on Dresden, uh, the attack on the French fleet, all under Winston Churchill, whom we so much admire, and rightly so. This is a very small matter. It is being pinpointed now for reasons uh, that I cannot ascribe to anything other than the quest for a certain publicity. Well, I think it's a from their point of view, for one thing, the Chagossian Islanders are not the, the Nazis, and from their point of view, it's a quest for justice. And what is your motivation, if I may inquire? Purely the quest for justice, I'm sure. Yes. Yes, yes it is. Yes. Do you not think these, these questions are, are valid in asking you about consequences of the imposition of great power on people? I think that the questions uh, refuse, are based upon a refusal to acknowledge the context of the times and the attitudes of the times and that it is based upon uh, a willingness 35 or 40 years after a set of events to go back and critique them when they had uh, become, what shall I say, far less relevant. Far less relevant? The High Court in London found it extremely relevant. In November 2000, it agreed with the people of the Chagos and handed down a shaming rebuke to the British government. The court ruled that the expulsion of the islanders was illegal. After more than 30 years, they had won and were finally going home, or so they believed. It's uh, the Victory Day for the... A victory in the High Court gave Olivia Bancor and his people the right to start their lives again. It's something which I will never forget when just coming out of the court with this to ask that it is a victory for for the Sagotian people, the small people upon a big power.
However, the Foreign Office had other ideas. Within hours of the High Court judgment, it announced that the government would not allow the islanders back to Diego Garcia, the main island where most of them came from. Robin Cook told me that he said it would have been politically impossible to allow the Chagossians to go back to Diego Garcia because they had a treaty with the United States. Well, the first thing to point out there is that this is British sovereign territory. The British have a duty to their own citizens. They have the legal power to tell the Americans uh, what policy and what immigration law they're putting in place on the islands. But in the meantime, we've signed a couple of pieces of paper with the Americans, and we now regard our obligations to them as uh, paramount. Uh, I just don't see the logic of that. And to keep the people from the rest of the Chagos Islands, the Foreign Office invokes something called a feasibility study, which would question if people could survive in this idyllic place where they had lived for six generations. This study consulted not a single inhabitant of the Chagos Islands. After the High Court victory, the government promised the islanders that at least they could visit the graves of their families. Boats were chartered here in Port Louis, Mauritius, but they never set sail. Baroness Amos, Tony Blair's leader of the House of Lords, explains why they never went back. We chartered a vessel. Unfortunately, uh, the vessel was not made available. Uh, we are happy to reinstate any such visit, but it would not include Diego Garcia uh, because of the reluctance of the US government. The president of Mauritius, Kasamu Team, took her up on this. So I said to the Baroness, I said, Britain has no objection. She said, no, Britain has no objection. She said, do you allow me to take the matter up with President Bush? She said, by all means. And this is what I did. I wrote to President Bush. The reply came, I'm sorry to say, we don't deal with the Russian government. We deal only with the British government. And the British are not agreeable. It's black and white. The British are not agreeable to this visit. And we agree with the British. So they've been playing table tennis, ping pong, with the Chagossians. When we go to London, we are told it's an American problem. When we go to Washington, we are told it's a London problem. It is an arrangement between them to, to you know, treat this problem as a ping pong ball. And, and, and it's, it's terrible because by the time the ping pong game is over, well, there will be no Chagossians left. By June this year, the Blair government had run out of excuses, but there was still one more trick to play. Have you ever heard of something called an order in council? It's a royal decree using archaic powers, which unknown to most of us are still invested in the Queen. It's a cosy arrangement. The Queen rubber stamps what in many cases, politicians know they can't get away with democratically. On November the 5th, 1965, 
An order in council was issued by the government of Harold Wilson. The aim was to secretly expel the population of the Chagos Islands, all of them loyal subjects of the Queen. In June this year, the Blair government used the same powers to bypass Parliament and the High Court in order to ban the Chagos Islanders from ever returning home. Dictators do this, but without the quaint ritual. The quaint ritual takes place here at Buckingham Palace. The public never sees it. Parliament is merely told about it. Orders in council, uh, they go through without discussion. They're read in title only. No reason is given for them. No contents are spoken. The Privy Council never even sits down. They all stand around. The clerk of the council reads the thing in title. Uh, there were two orders. And the Queen says, agreed. And that's it. That is it. It's a decree. It's a decree. And with that royal decree, the people were banned forever from going home. It was June the 10th, 2004, election day in Britain, when they thought no one would notice. The High Court has ruled that the expulsion of the Chagossians was illegal. The uh, Commission on Human Rights of the United Nations has called on your government to uh, return them to their homeland. Why has this government denied this basic human right of return? Firstly, the feasibility study, which was drawn up by independent experts, which told us that the only population of the islands that would be possible is short-term on a subsistence basis. Longer term would be precarious given the climactic conditions, given that in some cases uh, some of the islands are barely two foot above sea level and would be very costly. It is true that the Foreign Office has conducted I think now three um, feasibility studies as they call them about resettlement. Their contents have nothing whatever to do with the resettlement of the islanders who had lived there for 200 years. Page after page after page is devoted to establishing that the beaches are made of sand. Take your shoes and socks off and walk across them. You know what sand is, I know what sand is. They then go on to say human interaction on global warming will make occupation of the islands precarious for a resettled population. But that's a very strange statement because there is a settled population. There's hundreds of American military and thousands of civilian workers. They're all on Diego Garcia. They're not going to sink under the waves. Far from sinking, they're sailing on it, swimming in it, playing in it, and having a Barbie next to it. And what do they call this unlivable place? Fantasy Island. Nobody takes those conclusions seriously, and, and, and insofar as the government repeats them, I'm afraid they, they're just opening themselves up to ridicule. At the moment, on Diego Garcia, there are 4,000 US servicemen and contractors. There are two bomber runways, each two and a half miles long. There are anchor anchorages for 30 ships and two 
nuclear-cleared berths. There are space-tracking domes and weapon ranges. It's the biggest American base outside the United States, which the U.S. Navy describes as indispensable. The living conditions as outstanding. The recreational facilities as unbelievable. And the U.S. wants to extend the lease past 2016. And, and, and you're asking us to believe these islands are uninhabited or they're sinking? No, no, no. Of course they're inhabitable, but at a cost. The United States does have concerns about the climactic conditions longer term in respect of Diego what Garcia. and has Exactly the same concerns that were formulated in our uh, independent study. But what the independent study told me, there was, there, there was no fresh drinking water, there was you know, real concerns in the outer islands about the sea levels and the danger of flooding, and there would be a need for substantial expenditure on actually building a livable uh, infrastructure. One of the chief things was, what is the water supply going to be like? Oh my God, we can't guarantee it. These islands, and I've published this in 1971, are respectively uh, the third, Perospanjas, and the fifth, Salomon, wettest islands in the world. Peros with four meters of rain a, a, a year, and the other with 3.5. When it rains, the water tables are so high, um, the rain remains on the surface for days. So what, what does that make, these feasibility studies? Worthless. Waste of time. Waste of time. Let me ask you, does this government, do politicians in this government, because this story has shocked most people, do you not feel any shame for these actions? I've said to you at the beginning, I am not seeking to justify the decisions no, taken in the No, I mean shame now, because no, 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 the, same, no, I the same powers to ban them. No, I don't feel ashamed, because I took what I believe, and the government took, a responsible decision in the circumstances, almost 40 years after the last child Gossian lived within these islands, and I was being asked, and the government and the British taxpayer was being asked, to pick up the financial tab to allow, uh, almost on an exploratory basis, for people to go back to the islands. You, you, you can't manufacture money. You actually have to make choices about how you spend your money. Only the other day, the minister was asked uh, by a member of parliament, what is the anticipated cost? Hmm. And uh, the answer was £5 million to set up and £5 million a year to run. Well, that's peanuts. £5 million is the cost of a, an embassy building in London. This is an embassy building in Mauritius, home to Mr. David Snoxell, the British High Commissioner. It has tennis courts, lavish gardens, security fences, a swimming pool, and a Jaguar car. All paid for by the British taxpayer. Minutes away, these are the British citizens who are less worthy of taxpayers' money. the government won't allow the islanders to go home is not money, it's power, American power, and its self-given role to dominate. Might is right, and the great powers have the might, and therefore the right to do anything they want, wherever and whenever they want. They wanted the Shagushan Islands, in particular Diego Garcia, for base, they take it, they grab it, it's their right. However, the islanders are not giving up their right of return. Today they're getting ready to demonstrate outside the British High Commission 
in Port Louis. So these are all going on the demonstration to yeah. the High Commission. Yeah, of course. This, uh, this is a, a, a particularly <coughs> uh, relevant one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When you, I mean, that's quite a serious indictment. What, 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 yeah, of course. We but should, you're referring to we the, high, the High Court yeah. found in your favour that you could all go home yeah. and the British government has prevented you from yeah, going yeah. home. Yeah, yeah. This is this why we, it, 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 it's true. It's something that everyone must know about it. What had been the British government seems to be using all of its powers to even capture the, uh, the law and using it for its own political ends. You know, by overturning the High Court ruling and saying that you know, this is no longer on, that our, by referring to the Crown prerogative and going back to these medieval laws and overturning you know, the legal decision to allow these people back to the outlying islands, that to me is a capture of the legal powers of the state that really only happens in totalitarian regimes. The struggle and the dignity of the Chagos Islanders were displayed here by elderly ladies having to stand on the street and shout for their basic human rights. You know, these are a lot of very spirited old ladies who you won't allow to go home where they want to go home and die. That's basically, these are the people who are leading the charge among the Chagossians. Isn't that shameful? Of course I've got sympathy for people based upon what happened to them and their families in the past. But this is today, almost 40 years after that event. And for us and the British government and the British taxpayer to be asked to finance that, when that money could actually alternatively go on leaving aid uh, and, and, and poor people throughout the world, but that, that is a choice, that, that you ask me whether I'm ashamed of the decision that I've taken. No, I'm not. I believe in the circumstances, and it was a difficult decision. I believe we took the right decision. No human being would treat another human being the way the British administration treated the Shagosians people. In this part of the world, except if we go back to the days of slavery and to the days of endangered labor. Mm. We don't, we, we, I can't remember anything of the sort happening. Jesus Christ. How low can you get? How, how intellectually dishonest, how morally duplicitous can you get? I, I've spent my life, 40 years now, with this, and every single thing sickens me. And it goes on, it goes on, it goes on, conservative, labor. Year after year, Olivier and Rita, Lizette and Charlesia come to this monument in Port Louis Harbor. It commemorates those Chagos Islanders who died in exile from sadness. Il vient faire les guerres, faire mal. Et bon Dieu, pour punir les autres, ça, ça calte ma matière qu'ils ont pu faire nous souffrir. Il vient, c'est bien, madame. Bien, c'est bien. 
scalena così, dite mola non arrivi. Ho fatto il là, la famiglia. E tutti i temps che mi lavo la vita, mi lavo la vita, mi lavo la vita, mi lavo The film you've just seen is not only the story of a single injustice, it's a rare glimpse of great power at its most ruthless. What was done to the people of the Chagos raises wider questions for those of us who live in powerful states like Britain and America. Why do we continue to allow our governments to treat people in small countries as either useful or expendable? Why do we accept specious reasons for the unacceptable? Four years ago, the High Court delivered one of the most damning indictments of a British government. It said the secret expulsion of the Chagos Islanders was wrong. That judgment must be upheld, and the people of a group of beautiful, once peaceful islands must be helped to go home and compensated fully and without delay for their suffering. Anything less diminishes the rest of us. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. December 31st, New Year's Eve. The crash and its terrible consequences were still in the future. Financial leaders, everyone, celebrated what had been a decade of prosperity and boundless uplift. They thought the party would last forever. They called it the New Year. Was that 1929, uh, Blue Skies? In the 20s, yes. Blue 20, Skies. Smiling at me. Yeah. Nothing, Nothing but, but blue, blue Skies, skies do I see. Yes. 
Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. Gray days, all of them gone. Nothing but blue skies from the moon. was the whole uh, tenor of the day. I mean, people believed that everything was going to be great always. Always. There was a feeling of optimism in the air that you cannot even describe today. And everybody seemed to uh, have uh, uh, an interest in the stock market. Certainly the uh, boot black, uh, the tailor, the grocer uh, owned shares of one kind or another. This was the first time that many ordinary Americans had begun to invest in stocks. A stock, a share of a company, is bought and sold here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The stocks themselves have no fixed value. As in an auction, if the stock is in demand, its price goes up. No demand and the price goes down. For almost eight straight years, stock values had been rising. By 1929, there seemed to be no upper limits in this world of paper, numbers, and dreams. It was an arena of unbounded opportunity where somebody like my grandfather could come into it and make a fortune. So many people made so much money in the, the market that late in the 20s, it, it seemed that uh, you just couldn't go wrong buying stocks in American companies. Here was a whole new way to make a fortune. Unlike the Carnegies and the Rockefellers of previous decades who built steel mills and dug oil wells, men like Michael Meehan, Jesse Livermore, and Charles Mitchell had amassed their fortunes buying and selling stocks, pieces of paper. The public was fascinated. Bankers, brokers, and speculators had become celebrities, and they lived like royalty. I can hardly believe that a family lived in this kind of a house. I mean, today it would be almost unbelievable. Six stories and these great big rooms. Enormous. <laughs> we counted it up the other day. We had uh, 16 live-in help in this house. Not counting the chauffeurs, nothing. Not counting the chauffeurs, yeah. Uh, aside from all the help we had in the Tuxedo Park house and the Southampton house as well. But those days are gone forever. But we never thought of it as being grandiose because practically everybody we knew seemed to live in the same way. Josie Livermore had a ticker tape in every home that he owned. They had a beautiful house on 76th Street in Manhattan on the west side off Central Park. They had a floor at 813 Fifth Avenue because Dorothea did not like to go to the west side to change her clothes. So they had a house in Great Neck. They had a summer house in Lake Placid. They had a house in Palm Beach. They had private railroad car. Uh, two yachts. Oh, they lived. They really lived. 
Few Americans live like Jesse Livermore, but there was a rising expectation that everyone could have a piece of this prosperity. During his presidential campaign of 1928, candidate Herbert Hoover would make this extraordinary promise. Give her a chance to go forward with the policies of the last eight years. We shall soon, with the help of God, be inside of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. There was great hope. America came out of World War I with the economy intact. We were the only strong country in the world. The dollar was king. We had a very popular president in the middle of the decade, Calvin Coolidge, and an even more popular one elected in 1928, Herbert Hoover. So uh, things looked pretty good. dawn of the consumer revolution. New inventions, mass marketing, factories turning out amazing products like radios, rayon, air conditioners, underarm deodorant. This is a period in which the American household gets the washing machine, gets the refrigerator, goes off gas light and gets electricity in some cities. This is a period when people would buy little plugs to put into the uh, outlets in the wall so the electricity wouldn't leak on the floor. What will they think of next was a 1920 saying. This new things continually coming out. And there were new things which you could enjoy, not just for the few. One of the most wondrous inventions of the age was consumer credit. Before 1920, the average worker couldn't borrow money. By 1929, buy now, pay later had become a way of life. So uh, there were changes, many changes in the way people viewed the world, and all of them optimistic. You extrapolate the curve, and what do you have? Permanent prosperity. That was a term one heard in the late 1920s. We entered an age of permanent prosperity. Wall Street got the credit for this prosperity, and Wall Street was dominated by just a small group of wealthy men. Rarely in the history of this nation had so much raw power been concentrated in the hands of a few businessmen. Men like William C. Durant. It's almost impossible to realize the power and the significance of the men. Uh, in Flint, when Mr. Durant came to Flint occasionally, people used to say, Durant is in town. Just like that, Durant is in town. He was uh, bigger than life. Earlier in the century, Durant had founded General Motors. Now, he made his money on Wall Street. Backed by Midwestern auto industrialists, he controlled so much money that he could single-handedly drive up the price of a stock and then sell reaping huge profits. He was just at the apotheosis, at the maximum of his power. He managed, according to the voices of the time, according to what was said, anywhere between two to five billion dollars, which in those days was fabulous. The market was filled with bulls, and he was the bull of the bulls. Durant came to Wall Street as one of the titans of industry. Jesse Livermore, whose fortune was estimated at over $100 million, never did anything in his life 
but play the market. Everything Jesse Livermore touched turned to gold, it seems. All he had to do was to press a button and the stock would go up 10 points. And uh, that meant, of course, that Jesse Livermore would make a lot of money. So uh, the average American would look at this and say, gee, I, if, I, if only I knew what he was doing, I could make money too. How do you get in on Jesse Livermore's brains? Livermore was a speculator, pure and simple. He didn't study the health of a company. He didn't care whether it made a profit or paid a dividend. For him, the stock market was an abstract game of numbers. Money was not the end for this man at all. Money was a very peripheral thing for him. But beating the odds, winning the game, that was, that was his objective. He was a numbers man. He lived by the numbers. He took an elevator by the numbers. He came into town by the numbers. Everything was done by numbers. When he left his house in the morning, he did not leave at 8.10. He left at 8.07. All of the policemen knew, because of his time schedule, that he would be going down Fifth Avenue, let's say, at 8.37. Well, of course, traffic lights were hand-operated then. Had policemen on boxes. So the instant that they saw his car, the lights were green. He never stopped for a red light. The success of large speculators like Livermore and Durant lured smaller investors to Wall Street. But Charles Mitchell, president of National City Bank, virtually invented the idea of mass marketing stocks and bonds to the general public. This was a totally new idea and a huge success. The bank, uh, prior to Father's being elected uh, uh, president in 1921, was geared mainly to doing business with large corporations. Father pointed the bank for the first time in the direction of uh, going after the little man. And I well, in the little man, it was every man. Well, Yedemann, all right. Uh, how old was he then? 38 years old. And uh, the National City Company had uh, four offices. I know within three years there were over 50 offices. And by 1929, it was the largest distributor of securities in the world. Even at the height of the speculative frenzy, only a small percentage of the American public actually invested in stocks. But the market had entered popular culture. Wall Street became Main Street. Everyone was talking stocks. Watching the ticker became a national sport. Popular magazines covered financial news. Dozens of bestsellers promised investors the inside track. Oh, what a feeling. You got me feeling bigger and better than ever. The characters in the popular comic strip Gasoline Alley were investing in a company called Rubber Keyhole. Stock tips came from everywhere. Some investors followed the advice of Evangeline Adams, an astrologer. She was able to calculate the uh, variations of the stock exchange so accurately that there was practically no difference to having them read it in a, in a ledger somewhere. Among her more interesting clients were Charles Chaplin, uh, Mary Pickford, and J. Pierpont Morgan. In February, 
Evangeline Adams looked at the stars and predicted a dramatic upswing in stock prices for the coming months. I'm looking up at the sky. I see the clouds rolling by. Hello, sunshine. Hello. I'll say you long over The stock market, once considered a highly risky place to put your money, is now beginning to attract a whole new group of amateur speculators. Among the new players was one Julius Marks. Everyone knew him by his stage name. Groucho. But they were poor. And my father, it always affected my father. Because he was always kind of thrifty and uh, worried about his future and where it would become of him when no one else wanted him as an actor anymore. So he was always saving money, turning off the light and turning off the water around the house, even after he was in Hollywood and making a lot of money. Of all the Marx brothers, Groucho was the most financially conservative. In 1929, he took his life savings and put it in a sure thing, the stock market. He was always uh, phoning a broker and getting hot tips and wanting to know what the stocks were, that, how they were doing. And uh, if he wasn't on the phone, he would take me into Great Neck, which was a little village at the time, but they did have a stockbroker called Newman Brothers and Worms, and all these men who were investing in the market would all sit there in chairs like a little theater and watch the ticker tapes go by. Groucho, along with record numbers of smaller investors, was borrowing money to buy stocks. It was called buying on margin. You only needed 10% down. Just $1,000 would get you $10,000 worth of stock. Suddenly you were in the same league with the big players. Or so it seemed. But the stock market was not a level playing field. In the 20s and 30s, one of the big features of the uh, stock market is the fact that it wasn't controlled. And that operators could do a lot of things that are not permitted today. One of the most common tactics was to manipulate the price of a particular stock. A stock like Radio Corporation of America. RCA was in the 20s what Xerox was in the 60s, what was a great growth stock. Uh, the stock went from, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but from something like 20 to 400, split many times, and made many people, including my grandfather, very wealthy. Uh, it was one of the stocks that was... Um, manipulated by a pool. Wealthy investors would pool their money in a secret agreement to buy a stock, inflate its price, and then sell it to an unsuspecting public. Most stocks in the 1920s were regularly manipulated by insiders, like RCA specialist Michael Meehan. In those days, that was legal, and um, it was quite common practice for a group of... Um, Wall Streeters to take a stock in hand and um, they would acquire a position in the stock early on and then um, they would see to it that there was good press on the stock, a lot of publicity. I would say that practically all the financial journals were on the take. This includes reports of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Herald Tribune, uh, you name it. So uh, if you were a um, uh, a pool operator, you'd call your friend at the Times and say, look, uh, Charlie, there's an envelope waiting for you here, and we think that uh, perhaps um, you should write something nice about RCA. And Charlie would write something nice about RCA. Publicity man called A. Newton Plummer had canceled checks. 
from practically every major journalist in New York City. Then they would begin to what was called painting the tape, and they would make the stock look exciting. They would trade among themselves, and you'd see these big prints in RCA, and people will say, oh, it looks as though that stock is being accumulated. Now, if they are behind it, you want to join them. So uh, you, want, you buy stock also. And what's happening is the stock goes from 10 to 15 to 20, and now it's at 20, and you start buying. Other people start buying, 30, 40. The original group, the pool, they stop buying. They're selling you the stock. It's now 50, and they're out of it. And what happens, of course, is the stock collapses. On March 8, 1929, Michael Meehan began one of the most successful pools on Wall Street. From the 8th to the 17th, Meehan and the pool pushed up the value of RCA almost 50%. On March 18th, they sold and divided up their profits. In today's money, they had made $100 million for one week's work. The pools were a little like musical chairs. When the music stopped, um, somebody owned the stocks, and th those were the sufferers. If small investors suffered, they would soon be back for more. They knew the game was rigged, but maybe next time they could beat the system. Wall Street had its critics, among them economist Roger Babson. He questioned the boom and was accused of lack of patriotism, of selling America short. Roger Babson warned of the speculation, said there's going to be a crash, and uh, the aftermath is going to be quite terrible. And people jumped on Babson from all around uh, for saying such a thing, so that... Uh, People who were cautious about their personal reputation, who did not want to call down on themselves a lot of calumny, uh, kept quiet. Mobster Al Capone was not a cautious man. From his Chicago headquarters, he condemned the wild speculation on Wall Street. It's a racket. Those stock market guys are crooked. Capone invested his money in a $100 million bootleg liquor business. Business was good on Valentine's Day, 1929. He had just eliminated the competition. March 4th, Inauguration Day. Republican President Calvin Coolidge had run his administration on the belief that business was the basis of America's prosperity. Government should not interfere. Herbert Hoover had won a landslide victory promising to carry on the tradition. This was a time in our history when governments did not, as now, take responsibility for the economy. They presided over it. But uh, the level of, of economic activity and the level of economic growth and the stability of prices were not yet everyday concerns of the president. And uh, uh, what Coolidge did was to uh, say how wonderful times were, how happy everybody was going to be, and how prosperous everyone was going to be. And 
Hoover's responsibility was to continue that optimism. You, Herbert Hoover, do solemnly swear. Politicians came and went, but in the 20s, the businessman was king. New York City had a dapper, corrupt, and vastly popular mayor, Jimmy Walker. But behind the scenes were powerful financial leaders like Charles Mitchell. Jimmy Walker was high, wide, and fancy with the city finances. One day, father called Mayor Walker up here. Uh, and he had some other bankers with him, and Mayor Walker was sort of put on the grill in the upstairs library uh, while these bankers read the riot act to him to try and get some fiscal responsibility uh, instilled into him. And I know that after the meeting, uh, someone took me into the library and pointed, pointed me out the chair that the mayor had been sitting in, and he'd been so nervous. Oh, those Louis Cator's, uh chairs with Louis all the little... Louis chairs with all the little um, tacks in there, yeah. brass tacks. And he pulled out almost all the brass tacks that were sitting on the floor <laughs> out of sheer nerves. The stock market, too, was getting a severe case of nerves. On Friday, March 22nd, all eyes were on that august government body in Washington, the Federal Reserve Board. The board distrusted the boom. They saw the speculation as reckless and dangerous because it was based more and more on the shaky foundation of borrowed money, margin. The board had the power to curb the borrowing, but the market was now dependent on borrowed money. Without margin, it would collapse. The board met day after day. Would they ask for regulation of the stock market? They issued no public statements. Their silence was terrifying. Get my broker, say get my broker. Got to do, got to do, got to do. On Monday, March 25th, investors began to sell. Blue chip stocks plunged. Tuesday, another wave of selling swept the market. As it fell, people holding stock on margin were hit hard. They put only 10% down, but the value of their stock dropped more than 10%, so their down payment was gone. To hold their stocks, they'd have to put up more money. On March 26, millions of investors suddenly found themselves in deep trouble. Your broker would call you and say, we need more money. You're wiped out. Unless you could give him more money, he would then sell the stock. Now, he would sell the stock, which would cause the stock to go down to 83, 85, 86. And now more margin calls are triggered. So one margin call triggers, another margin call triggers, another margin call, and it goes all the way down. With everyone trying to borrow money to cover the falling value of their stocks, there was a credit crunch. Interest rates soared. At 20%, few people could afford to borrow more money. The boom was about to collapse like a house of cards. Charlie Mitchell was horrified. His success, his entire career, his personal fortune had been based on a rising market. If nobody else was going to stop the crash, Charles Mitchell would. Father, at that point, stepped in and announced that the National City Bank would provide $25 million of credit, which was all very well and very necessary. But he added the fateful words, uh, whatever the Federal Reserve Board thinks. 
and uh, Senator Carter Glass, who had been sort of the father of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, took that as a direct slap across the face. Uh, but whatever Senator Glass thought, immediately the credit crisis was uh, alleviated. In fact, within the next 24 hours, call money went from 20% to 8%, and that stopped the panic then in March. The next day, the market rallied. The Federal Reserve Board remained silent, tacitly accepting defeat. The hero of the day was Charlie Mitchell. He had single-handedly stopped the crash of 29. With the start of the baseball season, people quickly forgot the break in the market. New events filled the papers. There was a crisis in Nicaragua, where the nationalist hero, Augusto Sandino, was threatening American Marines. Tragedy in the British Mandate of Palestine, as Jews and Arabs clashed over control of holy sites in Jerusalem. And in Antarctica, Commander Byrd was at his base camp, Little America, waiting for a break in the weather. His elaborately planned flight over the South Pole was still on ice. The newsreels had come into their own. Now, in living sound, patrons could keep abreast of the important events of the day. The biggest news of the day is not the naval agreement, not even prohibition, but the return of the natural waistline. Dorothy Livermore was a typical flapper. She has to embody the funny. She would do almost anything on an impulse. She had some priceless pieces of 18th century furniture. But the house had settled, and the floors were not level. But Mrs. Livermore didn't like to spend money that didn't show. So instead of having the hoist put underneath, she simply solved the problem by having the legs of the furniture cut off to fit the sloping floors so that the tops of all the furniture were level. But, of course, the legs were on different angles. And this was her typical solution. It, as long as the tops were level, everything was fine. Everything was not fine that spring with the American economy. It was showing ominous signs of trouble. Steel production was declining. The construction industry was sluggish. Car sales dropped. Customers were getting harder to find. And because of easy credit, many people were deeply in debt. Large sections of the population were poor and getting poorer. Just as Wall Street had reflected a steady growth in the economy throughout most of the 20s, it would seem that now the market should reflect the economic slowdown. Instead, it soared to record heights. Stock prices no longer had anything to do with company profits, the economy, or anything else. The speculative boom had acquired a momentum of its own. So this is uh, the nature of mass illusion. Prices were going up. Um, people bought. That forced prices up further. That brought in more people. And eventually the process becomes uh, self-perpetuating. Every increase brings in more people 
uh, convinced of their God-given right to get rich. The 20s was a decade of all sorts of fast money schemes. Three years earlier, everyone was buying Florida real estate. As prices of land skyrocketed, more people jumped in, hoping to make a killing. Then, overnight, the boom turned to bust, and investors lost everything. Florida, folks, sunshine, sunshine, perpetual sunshine all the year around. Let's get the auction started before we get a tornado. Right this way, step forward, everybody. In May, the Mott right brothers were before the cameras with their first film, The Coconuts. Its subject, the Florida land boom. Now, in 1929... The gullibility of those naive speculators was something to laugh about. 800 wonderful residences will be built right here. Why, they're as good as us. Better. You can have any kind of a home you want to. You can even get stucco. Oh, how you can get stucco. Now is the time to buy while the new boom is on. Remember that old saying? A new boom sweeps clean. And don't forget the guarantee. Groucho Marx would film these scenes and then rush to his broker to put more of his savings into the booming market. On margin, of course. Max Gordon, the Broadway producer, was also heavily in the market. And Gordon could never get over the fact that the market was going up and up and up all the time. And he said to my father, uh, how... Uh, how long has this been going on, Groucho? And my father said, I don't know, but my broker down in uh, Great Neck tells me that it's because there's a worldwide market for American goods and it's never going to go down. The market will just keep going up and up and up. May 1929. Stock prices were going up and up. With so much money to be made, people were borrowing more money than ever before to buy stocks. Market leaders like William Durant, far from being worried, were ecstatic. Off on his annual visit to Europe, he announced that everything would be fine as long as we all continued to believe. Confidence, not halfway confidence, but 100% confidence, is the real basis for our prosperity. Astrologer Evangeline Adams was now putting out a newsletter. Her 100,000 subscribers learned how the Zodiac could influence stock prices. Her advice for the coming summer? Buy. Hitting the ceiling, hitting the ceiling, breaking through to the sky. They thought this was a ride that was never going to end. It just goes on and on and on, and every day they got more money and they're counting up their paper profits and they're selling and buying and buying and selling and they're doing great. Hitting the ceiling, hitting the ceiling. She's like going to get a shoe shine and say, How's the market? He goes to what's in a bar, he goes, How's the market? Everybody was in the market. They were uh, people who were looking for the uh, one lucky break. Uh, people who were just hoping that they strike it right. You know, you, they, you take a rifle, you aim it in the ocean, and you hope to hit a fish. Along with the market, temperatures soared that summer. It was a record heat and a record three months at the exchange. Some stocks doubled in value. In June, the New York Times index of stocks rose 52 points. In July, another 25. In the middle of the summer, the Graf Zeppelin was completing his first leisurely trip around the world. The Marx Brothers had finished shooting their film, The Coconuts. Commander Byrd was still at his base camp near the South Pole. 
He, too, had money in the market and radioed his broker for the latest quotes. Back in Cleveland, George Norman Root did his 500 phone numbers. And on the radio, they were playing the latest hit tune, I'm in the market for you. I want a thousand shares of your caresses, too. We'll count the hugs and kisses when dividends are due. Cause I'm in the market for you. On August 17th, Michael Meehan's brokerage firm launched a new service. One of uh, my grandfather's innovations was putting brokerage houses on the ocean liners. Uh, the first went on the Berengaria, and that allowed you during the whatever it was, six or seven day passage to Europe, if you were such a, uh, a stock market addict that you couldn't stand the withdrawal for that period, you could walk into the office and place your order to buy or sell 100 shares of General Motors or General Electric or whatever, and they would radio that order back to New York. It was being very modern at the time. They were very wealthy people on the transatlantic liners, and it, it gave them something to do. At sea and on land, everyone seemed to be making money. It was a stampede of buying, and major speculators like John Jacob Raskob whipped up the frenzy. He told readers of the Ladies' Home Journal that now everyone could be rich. September 2nd, Labor Day. It was the hottest day of the year. The markets were closed and people were at the beach. A reporter checked in with astrologer Evangeline Adams to ask about the future of stock prices. Her answer? The Dow Jones could climb to heaven. The very next day, September 3rd, the stock market hit its all-time high. My father and I had an ongoing discussion about the stock market. And I used to say, Pop, everybody's getting rich but you. You, you know, you, you work so hard and, and, and you're never going to make a nickel. All you do is you keep delivering these newspapers and that's about it. The, the guy who's shining shoes is in a stock market. The grocery clerk is in a stock market. The school teacher's in a stock market. The teller at the bank is in a stock market. Everybody's in a stock market. You're the only one that's not in a stock market. And he used to sit on that and say, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see. On September 5th, economist Roger Babson gave a speech to a group of businessmen. Sooner or later, a crash is coming, and it may be terrific. He'd been saying the same thing for two years. But now, for some reason, investors were listening. The market took a severe dip. They called it the Babson Break. The next day, prices stabilized. But several days later, they began to drift lower. Though investors had no way of knowing it, the collapse had already begun. In the weeks to follow, the market fluctuated wildly, up and down. On September 12th, prices dropped 10%. They dipped sharply again on the 20th. Stock markets around the world were falling, too. Then, on September 25th, the market suddenly rallied. I remember well that I thought, why is this doing this? And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm new here, and these people 
Like every day in the paper, Charlie Mitchell would have something to say. The J.P. Morgan people would have something to say about how good things were. And I thought, well, they know a lot more about this market than I do. I'm fairly new here, and I really can't see why it's going up. But then when they say it can't go down, or if it does go down today, it'll go back tomorrow, you, you think, well, they really are like God. They they know it all, and uh, it must be the way it's going because they say so. As the market floundered, financial leaders were as optimistic as ever, more so. Just five days before the crash, Thomas Lamont, acting head of the highly conservative Morgan Bank, wrote a letter to President Hoover. The future appears brilliant. Our securities are the most desirable in the world. Charles Mitchell assured nervous investors that things have never been better. Practically every business leader in America and banker are right around the time of 1929 saying how wonderful things were and the economy had only one way to go and that was up. Unfortunately, he didn't have a crystal ball to predict the future. There's an old saying on Wall Street that the two most important uh, emotions are fear and greed. And you go from fear to greed in about a fraction of a second. So you're very, very greedy. And you say to yourself, I want to make more. And then the market goes down 10 points and you get, and you get frightened. I want to get what I, keep what I have, so you sell everything. And that's how you have a panic. So you have a panic on the upside, people rushing in to get in before the train takes off, and a panic on the downside, trying to get off the train before uh, disaster hits. Monday, October 21st. Hoover, along with the political and financial leaders of the country, arrives in Dearborn, Michigan, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Edison's invention of the light bulb. The host is Henry Ford. The country is reminded that in 50 short years, men like Ford, Durant, and Edison had transformed America from a third-rate power into the industrial giant of the world. And while they celebrated, their world was beginning to fall apart. So it came a Wednesday, October 23rd, when uh, the market was a little shaky, weak. Uh, whether this caused some spread of pessimism, uh, one doesn't know. It certainly led a lot of people to think they should get out. And so on Thursday, October the 24th, the first Black Thursday, uh, the market, beginning in the morning, took a terrific tumble. The market opened in an absolutely free fall, and uh, some people couldn't even get any bids for their shares, and it was wild panic. Uh, an ugly crowd gathered outside the stock exchange and uh, it was described as making uh, weird and threatening noises. It was indeed uh, one of the worst days that had ever been seen down there. There was a glimmer of hope on Black Thursday. Directly across from the New York Stock Exchange was a low, stately building, the House of Morgan. Twenty-two years earlier, J. Pierpont Morgan had stopped the panic of 1907. October 24th, high noon. All eyes were now on acting head 
Thomas W. Lamont. Tom Lamont called uh, a number of the other bankers, like Charles Mitchell of uh, the National City Bank and uh, uh, people from the Bankers Trust and uh, the J. Albert Wigan of the Chase Bank and so forth. There were about a half a dozen of them there. And they were gathered together to really discuss uh, what they could do to uh, stem this uh, tremendous onslaught of uh, selling stocks on the stock exchange that was taking place. About 12.30, there was an announcement that uh, this group of bankers would make uh, uh, available a very substantial sum uh, to uh, ease the uh, credit stringency and support the market. And uh, right after that, Dick Whitney made his famous walk across the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Richard Whitney, vice president of the exchange, was chosen by the bankers to be their representative. At 1.30 in the afternoon, at the height of the panic, he strode across the floor and in a loud, clear voice ordered 10,000 shares of U.S. steel at a price considerably higher than the last bid. He then went from post to post, shouting buy orders for key stocks. Stood up on one of the seats at the post. And he said, I'm going to give it 45 for 50,000 standard oil. And everybody started to pull a hole, the, the crash is over. His Morgan's putting his money in, and the crash is over. And sure enough, uh, there seemed to be evidence that the bankers had moved in to end the panic. And it, they did end it for that day. The market uh, stabilized and even went up. The New York Times uh, uh, said that thanks to the formation of this bankers' pool, they've uh, most uh, observers felt that the panic and the great sell-off was over. And uh, most people did feel that way. Tom Lamont felt that way. But uh, Monday was not good. Apparently people had uh, uh, thought about things over the uh, weekend, over Sunday, and decided maybe they might, might be safer to get out. And then came uh, the real crash, which was on Tuesday. Uh, when the market went down and down and down uh, uh, without seeming limit. October 29th. Morgan's bankers could no longer stem the tide. It was like trying to stop Niagara Falls. Everyone wanted to sell. AT&T down 50%. RCA wants $110 a share. Couldn't find buyers at 26. Blue Ridge 100 plunged to $3 and still no buyers. On the floor, they had never seen anything like it. And it was just like a nightmare. And I couldn't believe what was going on. In those days, every buy order was on a black pad. And every sell order was on a, a, a red pad. And all I saw was members running around with a fistful of red orders, just like chickens with their head cut off. They didn't know which way to run. They were panicking, screaming. Everybody was bumping into everybody else. Oh, oh, well, don't remind them. <laughs> Anyhow, this is what happened, and I tell you, and I was supposed to answer everybody yelling at me. I said, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I, nobody knew what the hell to do.
William Durant, the bull of the bulls, now tried single-handedly to support the market. The further it plunged, the more of his millions he poured into it. He became truly convinced that he was omnipotent. He thought that nothing could really unseat him. It was unfortunate. The forces were too great. There was no one man that could have been so powerful to control the market. There were some people, however, whose investment strategies made money. On October 29th, Jesse Livermore's wife, hearing of the crash, ordered the servants to move all the furniture out of their mansion into a small cottage on the estate. So when Mr. Livermore got home that night, he, he, he walked into a totally vacant house. When she told him that she had effected the move because she was sure that they had lost all their money, he told her that he had made more money that day than he had ever made before. For most others, it was all over. In brokers' offices across the country, the small investors, the tailors, the grocers, the secretaries, stared at the moving ticker in numb silence. Hope of an easy retirement, the new home, their children's education, everything was gone. My father was uh, ready to kill himself. In the morning of the crash, he got a call, and it was Max Gordon, and Max Gordon says, Gracho, and my father said, what? And Gordon said, Gracho, the jig is up. There were all sorts of rumors, and you'd see people going down the street looking up to see if they could catch somebody jumping out the window. Now, it turned out there weren't as many people jumped out the window as they reported, but some did, and others committed suicide. Other ways. 500 miles from Wall Street in the Atlantic, the luxury liner, the Berengaria, was heading home. From Michael Meehan's brokerage office, word spread through the ship. The bottom was fallen out of the market. Men came running out of their Turkish bags and towels. Card games ended abruptly. Everyone tried to jam into the tiny office yelling, Sell at market! They had left England wealthy men. They docked in New York without a penny. There's nothing unique about this. It is something which uh, uh, happens uh, every 20 or 30 years because that is about the length of the financial memory. Uh, uh, it's about the length of time that it requires for, one new, for a new set of uh, suckers, if you will, a new set of people capable of wonderful self-delusion uh, to come in and uh, imagine that they have a new and wonderful fix on the future. In the 1930s, Charles Mitchell was hounded by Senate committees and the IRS. The crash had left him $12 million in debt. This house was taken over, of course, and uh, things changed. And... Um, I began to know what the real world was all about. It was about time. I was 19 years old. In 1936, William Durant filed for bankruptcy. His only assets 
which he valued at $250, were the clothes on his back. In the late 30s, the founder of General Motors tried his hand at everything from running a bowling alley to selling a cure for dandruff. He died in 1947, still talking about making a comeback. Herbert Hoover spent much of the early 1930s fishing. He explained in a speech that fishing is a constant reminder of humility and of human frailty. For all men are equal before fishes. The game on Wall Street had changed a great deal for Livermore. And the SEC was becoming a powerful factor and the rules were changed. He couldn't operate freely, buy and sell, the way he had in the past. And he couldn't adapt to the new regulations. So in a sense, his playing with the market was over. And I think a great deal of his interest in life was over at that point. The game was gone. In 1940, the day before Thanksgiving, a photographer snapped this photograph of an old and very tired Jesse Livermore. Several hours later, Livermore would go into a men's washroom and put a bullet through his head. At the end of 1929, as they celebrated New Year's Eve, all that lay in the future. Nobody knew that the Great Depression was coming. Unemployment, bread lines, bank failures. This was unimaginable. Then good luck came a knocking at my door. But the bubble had burst. Gone was that innocent optimism, the confidence, the illusion of wealth without work. One era had ended. They toasted the coming of the 30s. Nothing but, but somewhere deep down, All they knew the party was over. smiling at me. Nothing but blue do I see. I never saw the sun shining so bright. I never saw things going so right, noticing the days hurrying by, when you're in love, my, how they fly, blue days, all of them gone, nothing but blue skies from now But blue skies do I see. I hear those little bluebirds, they're singing a song. Nothing but bluebirds all day long. I'm sitting on the world wearing a grin. That I'm not in Blue days, blue days All of them gone, gone. 
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival for the second and third segment of the program. Today, you will be joined by Alfred Adisk, and he will be talking with James Corbett of the Corbett Report, as they do most every Thursday. But first, you're going to hear the market report and a little bit of update in the markets for Thursday, April 30th, 2015. The last day of trading for the month was was an active day, to, to say the least. And, uh, you know, everybody has to position all these financial planners, all these, you know, big hedge funds and everything, whoever releases the statements, you know, they got to do a little bit of window dressing, you know, get rid of the losers and, you know, buy up some. So when they send out the statements, it'll make people feel good. It'll make them feel confident and it will want them to go out and buy or invest more. But we did have pressure on gold today. We had gold down 22 points at 1,182. The NASDAQ was down 50 at 1,615. Platinum was down 13 at 11.45. Palladium was down 5 at $780. The USDX today had some pressure on that, down 0.39 at 94.80. I mean, you had pressure two days in the, on the dollar, and I would ex- I expected gold to be higher today, but they hit it. So I would think that these levels, these are very good, very good levels to buy. I mean, I can't imagine the U.S. dollar index going up two full points tomorrow, or uh, you know. So I would think that you'd see some sort of reversal in the price of gold and silver tomorrow. I'm not saying it's going to go up 300. $300, but I think you will see um, gold and silver to the upside, precious metals to the upside tomorrow. Crude oil, 
0.97 at 59.55. And with the higher oil prices, I, I heard reports, and, and they made some good points, <coughs> excuse me, that, uh, you know, with oil hanging out around 60 bucks, that takes a lot of pressure off of all those loans and all of those derivatives that were attached to those loans. So, um, uh, so it, the inventories, uh, um, so these banks perhaps won't be calling in the loans, and uh, so there's a li- it's, there's a little less um, worry in reference to all those loans that were taken out with all this uh, with all the drilling and and um, so forth here in the U.S. So. Uh, so they might be liking the $60 level for oil. So you might be, you might see it fluctuate, maybe between you know 65 and you know maybe, you know 55. Uh, whether it gets higher than that, uh, we'll just have to see if there's any geopolitical situations that might arise that uh, might make it increase uh, higher than that. But. Um, uh, let's go on to the paper markets. We see the paper markets today. A little bit of pressure on those. You had the Dow down, I think, uh, a little over 1%, 195. They brought that back uh, earlier in the hour. We had it down 255 points. And, of course, as usual, they, they fight to bring it back. Uh, the NASDAQ, same thing, 82 points, 49.41. S&P down 21 at 2085 euro is up a little bit stronger 1.112 you know we've seen that hit a low recently you know there's issues suggestions that uh you know maybe maro draghi's stimulus is not working gee did we ever think that it would i mean if ours didn't work to the degree that they hadn't expected Japan's didn't work to the degree that they had expected. Why would you think Europe's stimulus of trillions of dollars or euros uh, would work? And um, so, again, it's just um, all they're doing is destroying their countries, just as ours have destroyed, just as the politicians in this country has destroyed our country. Ten-year yield, 2.05%. And um, Germany was up a little bit. Foreign markets didn't do much. Japan was down almost 3%, down 500 points. They're at 19,520. It was just a week ago that they were well above 20,000. So a big drop in the Japan market. And hopefully uh, um, Al and James Corbett talked a little bit about Japan's stock market and the the TPP. Uh, As we know, the Prime Minister of Japan was... Uh, in Washington this week, and uh, that was the number one agenda, was to try and get that uh, uh, big trade agreement passed. And Japan was, I'm not sure if they were the only country, but one of the major countries that was holding out on it. So um, they were supposed to make some announcements, but most likely with everything happening in Baltimore and everything else, certainly um, took his visit off the front page and, and possibly any other Executive order that was passed, you know, or maybe they're looking to uh, save that for when everything dies down and they can have everyone's attention. So we had that. Uh, gold fell about 2% on the day. Um, let's see. It showed that uh, out of the uh, 
U.S. consumer, the Commerce Department, Commerce Department said that consumer spending increased 0.4% in March, the strongest gain since a similar increase in November. Spending fell in December and January before climbing a modest 2% in February. Um, personally, it could also be the, the reason we had an increase in point, point 0.4% was tax refunds. Uh, certainly people who get refunds are going to file in January, beginning of February, and um, this March is about the time they get their returns back, even though the you know, even if the IRS was uh, behind in, in releasing the the, the re- refunds, uh, I'd say March would have been a good starting point for, for those uh, checks to be spent with the lower gasoline prices. And, and perhaps they felt that, uh, you know, it was better to spend those checks than to save them. Might see the same thing happen in April. We might have a little bit uh, uh, consumer spending increase for April, um, maybe due to the same thing. Um, the rise in spending, it came, uh, and despite the fact that income growth was flat in March. And uh, so, again, it shows that perhaps the IRS refunds was, the, uh, was what moved that number uh, to be increased for the consumer spending. Um, but the income growth was the poorest showing in more than a year. And, again, just another reflection of the fact that job gains slowed sharply in the month. Um, Let's see, what else was there today? Um, You know, again, yesterday, you know, we hear about the GDP, and certainly yesterday the Fed said they weren't too worried uh, about the economic slowdown. However, you know, it was all data dependent and whether they were going to increase the uh, rate, interest rates, and... uh, um, it was widely viewed that they wouldn't, that their comments uh, made them uh, reflect that the increase wouldn't be until the end of December to possibly 2016. Uh, then you come out with a little bit of news today. So the news isn't all that good. Certainly the markets didn't like it uh, with the reflection of the, you know, with the, with the, uh, um, job numbers today with the uh, report, the claims for unemployment figured that they'd make the rate increase sooner than later. I mean, it's all so silly. I mean, so you know what? If you're going to do it, do it. If you're not going to do it, just say, hey, we're not going to do it. The economy's got to get better. So what if the stock market drops 5,000 points? So what? bring a little reality in the market so that people can actually maybe have a life and make a plan uh, for what they can do for their future and their money. Every day I have, I can't tell you how many people tell me, you know, I hear I'm at an age, I thought it would be easy, I just stick my money in the bank, I could retire, and now all I do is worry about it. Well, you can take a little of that worry out of it by buying some gold and silver, because you can buy gold and silver and you can put it away and you don't have to worry. Because gold and silver, mainly gold as your preservation of wealth, will never go to zero like so much of this paper will be headed to zero. So, you know, take a lot of worry out of your, you know, out of your financial planning. Buy gold. Put it away. You forget about it. You don't have to follow the markets anymore. It's there. It's safe. It's not going anywhere. And with all this uncertainty... What, you can't believe that gold prices 
will only go higher. I mean, this is a no-brainer. Physical bullion demand in Asia has quieted a little bit in recent days, you know, as gold held above 1,200. But we all know that changes. You all know that there will be a pickup in demand for, and will support the global prices. Silver had a little bit lower. You know, all the precious, the precious metal sector in a whole all went down. Um, this time goes by fairly quick. And I had a couple of articles on Canada. Toronto, it's interesting. The one percenters are going to Toronto. However, I believe Toronto is the city that has a lot of Chinese people migrated to Toronto. And uh, perhaps this is why uh, there is an accelerated pace in the rate of high-end homes from 2013 to 2014 in this city. Um, Toronto is well known for its economic stability, experienced a 37% increase in the sale of luxury penthouses, apartments and houses in the 12 months to to the end of December. And that is just after a 4% rise in the previous year. So you go from 37% to 4% uh, from the previous year. And it outpaces San Francisco, Sydney, and Miami. And, of course, this report was done by Christie's International Real Estate Group. Uh, the study, which ranks the top 10 urban centers by the growth in sales of exclusive properties, found that the rate also slowed in Los Angeles, New York, and Paris, while transactions declined in London, Dubai, and Hong Kong last year. And uh, they, they rated uh, the world's ultimate luxury property markets was Toronto, San Francisco, Sydney, Miami, Los Angeles, New York, then Paris, London, Dubai, and Hong Kong. So I think when you have consumer confidence that that grew with the stock markets, you had the Shanghai go from 2,000 points to over 4,000 points in a matter of of six months. Uh, Certainly all your your world stock markets are 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 reaching highs. Um, Provides a lot of confidence that profits are taken out and property is purchased. So the one percenters, hey, they're doing good. They get to buy up all these high-class properties. So we go from the 1% to the middle-class reality. Now, here's the the real reality. People like you and me, and and, uh, this this, this is uh, General Motors Canada says it's going to cut about 1,000 positions from its Oshawa manufacturing operations this year. GM Canada said Thursday that its main assembly operation is expected to have about 26 hourly employees, down from 3,600 by December. I think it was back in 2012, GM had announced that it's going to move the uh, production of the Chevrolet Camaro uh, back to Michigan, to a plant in Michigan. So they've been waiting for the announcement, and uh, yeah, they had to wait quite a few years since they made the announcement late in 2012, and uh, they will be moving these people, offering retirement incentives and so forth. And I guess the downsizing is to be timed um, to the end of the year with a Chevy Camaro sports car. So that will be produced in Michigan. And um, I wonder what they're replacing in Michigan in, uh, to allow the Camaro to be built there. 
Another thing, and, and, you know, it's just not in Canada that we're seeing these reductions. I mean, as we just talked about uh, um, the wages and so forth, it's not doing as well. We have inflation. On the surface, Canada is 1.2 inflation. is negligible. Barely enough to keep up with the pace of overall growth as mandated by a few central bank academics. But if you look below the surface, This is where you find the truth. This is the truth that affects folks in Canada and folks like you and me here in the States. Because when stripping away the sliding energy prices, you find some scary numbers that emerge, like a 3.8% monthly jump in food prices, primarily as a result of a whopping 30 to 40% increase in select meat prices in the last eight months. Months. I think we mentioned this briefly on a previous program. We didn't talk much about it, but it was a sign that inflation is here. Inflation is strong. Inflation is here to stay. I don't care what numbers government produces or tells you that we have. For ordinary people, you and me, inflation is difficult to deal with. Canada... The, the, you know, the, the elite, those who work in central banks, they have the taxpayers that fund their everyday purchases, which allows them to fully ignore soaring food and rent costs, survive in an environment of soaring food prices. So they don't worry about it. They get their, they get their everyday purchases funded by the taxpayers. Um, so you, you have these meat prices, and it's just not meat in Canada. You have fruits, vegetables, they've also surged, driven almost entirely by the plunge and the loss of purchasing power of the Canadian dollar. Um, There was a vendor. He says there just doesn't seem to be an end to it. So you have these soaring food prices, flat wages, tumbling currency, and generally deteriorating standard of living. And um, so and this article is kind of funny because they actually related to the prime minister of, of Japan. And uh, when you have all those factors, high food prices, flat wages, tumbling currency, uh, they made a point to say that the prime minister would call it a smashing success. Well, it's not a smashing success when you're trying to provide for a family. You know, when you're when you're trying to provide with some decent food, fruits, vegetables, meats, um, standard of living deteriorates. We see this in this country. Take a look at Detroit, uh, not De- well, Detroit, Baltimore. However, your major city certainly has a problem, and uh, it's just not the the major problem that's in front of everyone. You know, that's the problem on the surface. But if you look underneath those problems that Baltimore is having, it reflects to the economic conditions. And, uh, I mean, everybody has an opportunity to do something, but, uh, you know, they also will strike out. Rubini had a nice little article about Detroit and the problems that the city faces. And uh, it certainly has been run, say, blame everything on Democrats. I mean, we understand it's a... You know, there's no difference between Democrats and Republicans, but you do have a tendency to see, you know, a lot of uh, places that are run by Democrats. They they certainly have their problems, 
And just to bring out another Republican that's just as bad as a Democrat, take a look at New Jersey. And uh, we're just about out of time. I just took a look at the clock. It's 4.20. Alfred and James Corbett will be with you in just a few minutes. Thank you for joining us today. I will be back tomorrow. Um, Stay tuned. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Folks, I'm Robert Adams, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188 for all your gold and silver coin needs. Our guest is James Corbett. Uh, James is has live, is uh, living in Japan, 
for the last 10 years now, I believe. 11? Is it 11 years, James? It is 11 this year, yeah. 11 years. Well, James, and he's here to report, as usual, with some intellectual perceptions and perhaps arguments, and we'll see what, we'll see what James has to say about, about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, James. What's going on with the proposed treaty between the United States and a number of Asian uh, nations to create a new trade group? Is this a good thing for the United States, bad thing, good for Asia? Who benefits and who loses, if anyone? Well, there, I mean, like anything else like this, it's going, there are going to be winners and losers. It's just a question of uh, which side the vast majority of the public is on. Um, so I guess with NAFTA or trade agreements like that, you could say there have been definite winners in certain industries, but, uh, but there's been a lot of losers. And I think we, uh, we found out that uh, Ross Perot, was it, who ha- had the uh, giant sucking sound in, mm-hmm. back in the 92 uh, campaign, he turned out to be quite largely right, as was, uh, well, he was mistaken in this regard. He said there'd be a sound, and in fact, there wasn't a sound. <laughs> mm. All right, it was a stealth um, yeah. vacuum right. system. Yeah. There were, but we didn't actually hear it. But he was right. Yes, that's 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 a good point, actually, because if there had been a big sound, if there had been something noticeable, perhaps the public would have been more aware of the failure that was NAFTA, that is NAFTA. Um, yeah, but and, tree falls in the forest, and CBS doesn't report it. Does it make a sound? Good question. Well, not until Brian Williams gives us his official word on it. I understand. Brian will tell us exactly how it all worked out. So, so I, I would put the TPP within that framework. It's a similar idea. It's just a much larger scale. And for people who don't know about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the people involved in the negotiations, uh, Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, United States, Vietnam, I believe a few others have, uh, have been added to the mix or are potential members anyway on the outskirts, Philippines, Laos, Colombia, Indonesia and several others. Um, And so basically, this is just the idea to create a a giant uh, free trade pact amongst all of these people in uh, a number of different areas, uh, talking about uh, uh, tariffs, talking about copyright, talking about medicine and patents and cost of medicine. Um, it, it even touches on issues like income inequality and environment and environmental regulation and things like that. So it's quite a huge negotiation that, of course, is taking place almost entirely in secret. And uh, it has made headlines here and there in the alternative media from time to time that, you know, this or that draft of the negotiating text has been leaked. But uh, there hasn't been a lot of coverage of it because there's not a lot to cover from the outside. All we know is that these negotiations are taking place. And the latest is that uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan is in Washington right now meeting with Obama, and they are talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I don't know the status of that. I don't know if there's been any updates today. Um, I'm not expecting there's going to be any breakthroughs on this trip in particular, but uh, this is obviously part of a a much larger and more complicated negotiation than I think even the players involved were expecting. I think they were hoping to have this all done and dusted and wrapped up and signed on the dotted line by the end of last year. It is continuing to go on. The negotiations continue to go on. There are different sticking points for different people. I think for Japan, one of the big sticking points is they don't want to open up their uh, agriculture industry, which is heavily subsidized and heavily protected. They don't want to open up uh, the market and allow some of this uh, foreign rice to flood in and uh, undersell the Japanese producers, etc. So 
So it's a it's a quite a big political issue here. I've seen a lot of posters, political posters and the like up here for for a couple of years now. Basically, people uh, mostly on the opposed opposing side. Um, I think a lot of farmers, lobby lobby groups, and political uh, affiliations have have put a lot of pressure on the government not to sign this deal, which I think is one of the reasons it hasn't been signed yet. But uh, they're they're working on it. They're continuing to work on it. And uh, who knows when and uh, where and how it will come about. But we do know that uh, Obama wants to put this on the so-called fast track so that uh, they can basically just pass it quickly and without much public debate. Yeah. What is the purpose of the secrecy? Are they doing such good deeds they're afraid the public would mess it up? Or are they actually uh, trying to take advantage and exploit the public in ways they know if we understood what was happening that we would we'd be ready to riot over the situation. And one other point about the secrecy. You know, it may be that we don't understand what's happening here, but by virtue of secrecy, we can expect that there will be conspiracy theories. If you're not going to tell us what you're up to, I guarantee you we're going to speculate. And some of that speculation is going to, it will turn out to be perhaps a bizarre conspiracy theory. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. But those conspiracy theories will flow from the secrecy. So why? And government should know that. They're not fearful of the conspiracy theories. They would rather maintain the secrecy than, and, and deal with conspiracy theories than tell us the truth, apparently. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I know you know this, and I know the uh, listening audience knows this, but let's just make it explicit. Of course, the term conspiracy theory refers to a theory about a conspiracy. Well, we know that a conspiracy is taking place. That's the very definition of what is happening in these secret, behind-closed-doors negotiations on this text. So we know there is a conspiracy taking place, and they're not telling us in, in detail. They're not giving us the details of what they are negotiating. So all we can do is theorize about what this conspiracy is doing. So they, you're exactly right. We are in a corner where there is nothing to do but to create conspiracy theories. And that is usually used as a pejorative, oh, well, a conspiracy theorist, oh, you must be crazy or something. But of mm-hmm. course, in this case, it is just the natural conclusion of what they are actually doing. So you're right about that. And I think you also answered your own question about the secrecy. Of course, uh, good deeds are done in the sunlight and uh, deeds that people don't want you to know about are done under cover of darkness. That is exactly what's happening with this negotiation. And I think specifically with the TPP, we've seen uh, a real change in tack. Uh, NAFTA was, of course, quite openly debated and openly talked about for much of the, uh, the the process by which that came into being. And we started to see, I think, a shift in strategy in the last several years, especially with things like ACTA and uh, and SOPA and PIPA and these other bills that have to do with intellectual property and and things that, of course, are going to impinge on the Internet and the way that uh, information flows or doesn't flow around the Internet and what people can post and the way they can post it and how they're going to be spied on by their ISPs, etc. When people started to realize what these negotiations were actually talking about and what was going to happen to the Internet as a result of it, we saw unprecedented protests um, uh, across the board, uh, and especially in Europe, where finally they did put ACTA to, to rest, at least in the form that it was currently in, because of some widespread uh, protests that occurred at sort of the last minute during the, those negotiations. Um, so we've seen uh, the, the, the scuttling of some pretty large and pretty comprehensive negotiations and treaties and, and, uh, and, and legislation as a result of public awareness and public activism. So I think with TPP and 
and uh, the, the uh, uh, I'm not going to remember the acronyms off the top of my head, I believe it's the TIPA or something of that sort, and there's the transatlantic version of the TPP that's also being worked on right now. With these this crop of uh, treaties, they are very much trying to keep this under wraps because they know that widespread awareness and protest can lead to an undermining of these treaties. So they're just trying to keep it out of the, the public spotlight as much as possible. And they've been largely successful. Um, most of the stories about the TPP continue to concentrate on the fact that we don't know much about it. Um, and that seems to be the extent that, to which the mainstream is willing to look into it. So, uh, so uh, they've been quite effective in this strategy. And that's, that's worrying because it, um, once they find an effective strategy, chances are they're going to go back to that well as often as possible until it fails. I've heard a report that's not verified so far as I know. But I've heard one report that under the new Trans-Pacific Partnership, it will be possible for people from these countries, workers, to move to whatever the, to wherever they want to go within the within the partnership. If people in a particular country, say South Korea, I don't even know if South Korea is part of this or not. I assume they are, but I don't know. If they wanted to move, in theory, to the United States. They'd find very little restrictions to prevent them from doing so. Now, do you know if that's a valid, is that a valid report, or is it just, uh, is it a conspiracy theory off the Internet? I do not know in enough detail to be Mm -hmm. able to say definitively on this, but I do know that an outlet, for example, like The New American, which has done some, some solid reporting in the past, so at least worth taking into consideration, they had a very recent article, Obama GOP trade scheme includes unrestricted integration, yeah. uh, talking about this this very issue and phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So I haven't looked into this in enough detail to be able to pronounce on it, but there are there is that argument there, and I would suggest people go and take a look at articles like that and start to, to look into some of the sources that are cited in, in articles like this to, to, to come to their own conclusions about it. But I think we have to understand that um, whether or not these specific clauses are within the, the treaty or whether the final form will reflect those specific clauses, I think we have to understand that is the general trend of, of agreements like this. And of course, that was very much what was at the heart of NAFTA and what helped to uh, to uh, quicken what was already going on at the time of, in the 1990s when NAFTA was passed, which was the deindustrialization of the United States. I think this would just be a further... Um, spreading out of industrial capacity amongst the various nations of this agreement, which is, I I think, something that should be uh, a pause for concern for people who already realize that there's not much industry left in America. So if this does really open up the immigration floodgates, that can go that can go corporate immigration in terms of sourcing uh, corporations more, uh, bringing them more outsourcing into the various partners in this agreement, and also, of course, can bring uh, economic migrants to the United States with less restriction. So, again, I can't pronounce on that specifically, but I know that that argument is being made and deserves to be at least uh, looked at. Well, it's one of these things where they are going to try to fast-track uh, this treaty, which my understanding, and my understanding is not complete on this, but my understanding this will allow Obama to essentially approve this treaty without any debate in the Senate. Do you know if that's true or false? Uh, that, as far as I know, and I don't know, again, the specifics about this, but that is what the fast track um, 
quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the, I don't know what the official title for that even is, but the the fast track authority that uh, Obama is arguing for for this would be exactly that type of process where there would be um, it would come before Congress without amendment. So uh, as described by that bastion of truth, uh, CNN, uh, trade promotion authority, which would allow trade agreements such as the TPP to come before Congress without amendment, has been on the books for decades. Uh, the power to use trade promotion authority, however, must be periodically reauthorized. Congress voted narrowly to give President Bush trade promotion authority in 2002, but that authority expired in 2007 and has not been renewed. So there is a, a fight going on right now in order to basically bring this back onto the books and allow the, the passage of this um, uh, this bill without amendment, without this treaty, I should say, without amendment. If they're not going to amend, if they can't amend the treaty, then they're essentially saying this is an all-or-nothing vote. You either take it or leave it, but you can't debate it. And they're betting that there's enough special interests controlling enough senators in particular where they're going to say, all right, I don't like part of it. I have to think part of it stinks. But nevertheless, I'm getting political campaign contributions from some people who want it, and therefore I'm going to vote for it. No amendments. We can't quibble. Is that that's right. Yes, yes, that's right. And I think the uh, the argument that's being made is that the the treaty as a whole will not pass without this uh, this type of authority being uh, reauthorized, specifically because all of the other nations involved in these talks won't really believe that the United States is is serious about commitment to this unless they get this type of. They're they're going to say that oh well you're not you're not being unanimous in this this is just a, a bipartisan thing and you know come 2016 when the when the other side probably gets into power it's all going to change so i think the other nations are also pressuring the united states to to pass this well i'd say two things on it you say they won't believe the united states is serious enough to pass this treaty is it that they don't believe they're serious enough or they don't believe they're dumb enough hmm. that would be the first question and uh, well, I guess that's the only question that's coming to mind right now. Uh, the other point is this. If we had to amend, if we were allowed to amend the treaty, then it follows that Japan would be allowed to amend the treaty. And South Vietnam and Vietnam would be allowed to amend the treaty. And everybody, and we would have a process. It pretty much has to be. They're apparently throwing a treaty at us at something like the uh, the Patriot Act or Obamacare. It's so big, so complex that nobody can read it. We're not going to let you read it. You've got to vote for it to find out what's in it, as Nancy Pelosi said. Uh, it just doesn't sound good. It's another one of these situations where people in positions of power are abdicating their responsibility. Well, let me, let me put a little ray of sunshine here. There is room for a little bit of optimism Insofar as the, uh, the there are committees in Congress that have been looking at this trade promotion authority and some bills have made it out of committee, but all of those bills require uh, will require at least four months uh, after negotiations are concluded for Congress to grant final approval to the TPP, which means that at its current rate, there's no way that it would uh, be able to be passed before uh, any time before the, 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 the heart of the 2016 presidential race. And I think that is probably a time frame that I, I don't know. I'm not crystal balling here, but I I think they want to try to avoid that time time frame specifically because obviously in the heart of a presidential race to bring up something very contentious like this, uh, a meaty political issue, they tend to try to avoid that. So I'm thinking this might be a sign that they might even try to push it back further than that. 
if they bring up something really contentious in the 2016 election, it might detract from public attention to Hillary. I mean, mm. I'm going to bet that she's providing enough of a sideshow all by herself where people say, well, no, we're not going to go see the bearded woman right now. Let's go look at PPP <laughs> instead. Let's take a break for some commercials. I'm here with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. We'll be back on financial survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. I'm here with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, Report.com. And James, we've been talking a little about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Japanese Premier Abe's trip to Washington to talk to Obama and what's likely to happen. Here's another one that goes into international affairs. A lot of people sit back and suppose that the creation of the BRICS uh, 
International Group and the Shanghai Gold Exchange and the Asian uh, what investment can't think of the Infrastructure Investment Bank and so on. These are going to detract from the New World Order, but you were recently interviewed on the SGT report. And here's, here's some of the description on your own website. It says, investigative journalist James Corbett, the Corbett Report, joins me with some very bad news about the New World Order. James says that despite the formation of the BRICS banks, the Shanghai Gold Exchange, and the New Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the international bankers' plan to usher in their New World Order remains firmly in place and on track. How could this be when the evidence suggests that the world is moving away from the dollar as wealth moves from west to east? Because, as James explains, at the very top of this bankster pyramid, the Chinese elite is connected directly with the U.S. Western elite. James has carefully documented the history of the eight immortal families and his report, China and the New World Order. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your report, China and the New World Order, give people a clue where they can, how they can get a copy, and is it true that China is in on the New World Order in the same sense that George W. Bush is and Barack Obama is? Are they all in on it? Well, I wish I could say that they weren't. I wish that China did present a, a true, real stumbling roadblock to the uh, the creation of this new world order. I don't believe that they do. And that's a considered opinion that's come from years of research that I coalesced into a podcast. It's episode 297 of my corporate report podcast. It's called China and the New World Order. So you can just type that into any search engine and it should show up, I hope, in the first page of results or so. And uh, the transcript of that podcast has just been made available thanks to a listener of mine who managed to transcribe the entire podcast. So that's up in the article section of CorbettReport.com right now. And uh, however you get the information, I hope that you do take a look at it because there is a wealth of information to show that the Chinese elite, and there is a Chinese elite, it is very much an oligarchy in a similar way that the United States and most other countries uh, on the planet are. And uh, those, those elite have been connected into the Western elite for a very long time, at least since the time of the communist revolution when Yale, Yale's man in China, Chairman Mao, uh, took over. And again, people might be surprised to hear about the Yale connection to the Chinese Revolution. But nonetheless, you can look at the Yale Daily News from February 29th, 1972. I have it linked up in that podcast. So you can go and actually look from the Yale website um, and, and read where they wrote about uh, uh, how Yale Group spurs Mao's emergence. And they, they put it in their own words, talking about how Mao was, uh, uh, in, in 1919, uh, he was visiting Peking. And while there, uh, he was receiving a serious introduction to communist theory in Lee Tiuk, uh, Charles's uh, Marxist study group. And then he was invited by the Student Union of Yale and China to overtake the editorship of their journal. And uh, that's when he started to basically work on the problem of thought reorientation, uh, which, of course, became the glorious uh, Chinese revolution that ended up killing tens of millions of people um, in a bloodbath that uh, that should never have happened, but it did. And uh, it's interesting to look at the various connections between Yale and uh, the Chinese communists. And uh, that that is really remarkable and was documented uh, in a 
uh, New Federalist article from 1990 called Bush's China Policy, Skull and Bones, talking about the Skull and Bones, i.e. the Yale uh, secret fraternity connection to the Chinese communists, and talking about how every single ambassador to China from 1973, the establishment of uh, diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, until the time of the writing of that article in 1990, every single ambassador except one had been a, a member of Skull and Bones. This extremely small fraternity of, I believe it's 12 members each year, are tapped to become a part of this uh, this group on the uh, Yale campus every year. So in, in existence, there are only a, a few hundred members that have ever uh, existed. And I think there are only, you know, a couple of hundred that are living at any one time. And out of that, every single uh, ambassador except one of them had been a, a Colin Bones member. It's, it's an interesting connection. But moving beyond Mao, um, who has his own interesting history. You come into the time when Mao was uh, was basically leaving power and Deng Xiaoping was taking over power in the 1970s. And that's when he started his open door policy in 1978. And that's when we started to see this connection developing between the, the Rockefellers, the Kissingers, uh, who were obviously instrumental in opening up and reestablishing diplomatic relations with uh, the Chinese. Uh, but they, they were moving in specifically to start the negotiations for, uh, for the, the, the real transfer of the Chinese economy into the hands of the usual suspects, the Fortune 500 jet set uh, crew. So uh, I have the details of a meeting that uh, off the top of my head, I want to say, took place in 1980 that involved uh, uh, representatives of uh, Rockefeller and, uh, and others meeting with uh, Rong Yi Ren of the Citic Group uh, to basically uh, plan out how this was going to work. Um, I have the details of that and uh, the sources for that in, in that episode itself, that podcast episode I'm referring to, China and the New World Order. And from that point, you can basically draw a straight line between these eight immortal families, they're called the eight immortals, and these are just basically uh, eight of the most powerful figures that were grouped around Deng Xiaoping at the, that time in the 1970s, who ended up coming into, uh, into positions of power in the Deng Xiaoping administration of, of China. And now their families have untold um, amounts of wealth that have been accumulated in various uh, business ventures like Citic, which is the Chinese kind of state investment firm. Um, now the, the descendants of these eight immortals are the ones who are running a lot of these state capitalist ventures, whatever you want to call them in communist China, who, who now have billions upon billions of dollars uh, amassed under them, uh, trillions in the aggregate. And uh, these people are, are demonstrably connected into the, uh, the, the Kissingers and, and, uh, and their ilk. And uh, I go through that in great detail in that episode. And also about the, the basically the opening up of China to lay the foundations, the groundwork for what became this explosion of China in the past decade and a half, where you had uh, Motorola and Nokia and Siemens and IBM and Microsoft and GM and Samsung and Nortel and GE and JVC and Intel and P&G and DuPont and Ericsson and Matsushita and Mitsubishi and Lucent and Bell and AT&T and many, many others suddenly investing great, great amounts in uh, creating R&D uh, 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 centers in China in the 1990s. They all located uh, R&D centers in China in the 1990s that laid the groundwork and the foundation for what became this sudden, out-of-nowhere rising giant that China has become in the 2000s. So I think we know this has been on the cards for a very long time. And interestingly enough, 
people who are familiar with Anthony C. Sutton, who has written Wall Street and the Rise of the, uh, the Bolsheviks, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, etc. In, in 1984, he wrote about America's secret establishment, and he actually wrote the quote, by about the year 2000, communist China will be a superpower built by American technology and skill. So uh, was Anthony C. Sutton, was he some sort of clairvoyant reading the future, or did he just examine the, the relations and see that it was very much a similar setup as America had used to build up the Soviets back in the early part of the 20th century. It was the same game plan on the same agenda, the same timeline. And lo and behold, come around the year 2000, suddenly communist China is taking off as this emerging economic power. So I think we have to understand that this has been uh, the end result of a long, very carefully, uh, meticulously planned phenomenon. And we see that from all sorts of different ways. But we see of course, people like Morris Strong and uh, the, the head of the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the person who created the UNFCCC that, that's, that does the, uh, the annual or the, the once every few years IPCC reports that tell us that the world's going to end because we're all driving SUVs or whatever the case may be. Uh, people like that relocating, literally locating in China now. And uh, we see all the, these businesses, these Fortune 500 CFR connected globalist jet set insiders uh, putting more and more of their uh, their factories and and uh, even their their executives in China over the past decade and a half. Uh, this is part of a, a plan, and I think the plan is to use China as the next stage of development of this new world order global system that really doesn't have anything to do with the United States of America. Uh, there will there are, will be people at the top of that that world proposed world government who will be from the United States of America, but I don't think they relate to the average American any more than some billionaire or trillionaire in China is going to relate to the average ch Chinese. You're suggesting that the world is run on something like a feudal system and something like the kind of system that existed where the kings of Spain, uh, kings, queen of Spain would have one of their, the prince would marry a daughter of England. They would, these royal families would continue to maintain control over the world. They would breed together and whatever. And the nations might have, we might have a system and call it capitalism. The Chinese might have a system and call it communism. Um, you could have democracy, you could have a number of different systems that seem to be perhaps unique to a particular country, and yet the truth is these systems are just facades. They're fronts. Whatever the culture will accept. Your culture, what are you, what's your culture? You want democracy? We got a democracy for you. You want, uh, you know, uh, communism? We got communism. We have fascism. We got everything. But behind the system that your country likes, there's some sort of an elite group of families, and they're the ones that are really pulling the strings. Is that the way you see these, see the, see the world system right now, or am I going too far? No, no. In a nutshell, I would agree. It's, it's oligarchy, and the oligarchy mm -hmm. masks itself behind whatever form of political uh, uh, for, uh, management is convenient in whatever country and culture they're in. And I think that uh, <clears throat> democracy has been, in many ways, the, the, most, the most effective cover for it. The, the, the rule of this oligarchy. I, I, I wish it was something as overt as the feudal times or times when kings and queens ruled over the public, because back in those times, if you were unhappy with your conditions, at least you knew uh, more or less who was causing them and who had to be removed from power in order to, to change those conditions. But we now live in a system where people truly believe that voting for Obama or 
McCain is going to make a fundamental difference to their their conditions of life. There, there of course, are going to be differences in policy between the different sides of the management arms of the, the oligarchs. But at the end of the day, the oligarch agenda is going to proceed um, one way or another. And uh, people are just given the illusion of choice. So I think it's a very, very effective way of basically stopping people from understanding what's going on, let alone how to even begin addressing that problem. You are focusing on the oligarch, which most people understand to mean the people that are extremely wealthy. All right. But is it really an oligarchy that's just a function of how much money you got in your bank account? Or is this blood families? You mentioned eight immortal families. Is it really families related by blood that are controlling this? Or is Bill Gates now a member of the oligarchy? He got lucky. He made money on Microsoft. And uh, is he now in the oligarchy? Yes, I think the the oligarchy is a power structure that allows that is permeable. There are members that come in and fall out. Um, and I think a great example of that is what has happened in the United States over the past uh, century, century and a half, especially with when we look at the 19th century robber barons, who generally became part of that oligarchy from family origins that were quite humble. If you look at the family origins of the Rockefellers and the Morgans, etc., they're not necessarily uh, impressive pedigrees, but because of the exploits of John D. Rockefeller or J.P. Morgan, they become parts of the oligarchy and they ensconce mm-hmm. themselves in it and in some ways even start to direct it, as we see with someone like uh, uh, David Rockefeller, who um, obviously is the one of the latest uh, progeny of that. So I think that it's a permeable um, membership as uh, per se, and there's no card-carrying members, obviously. There's a lot of uh, uh, rivalry and things that happen, and there are intermarriages that happen. So uh, I'm going to forget the name of the senator who uh, was the uh, Senator Aldrich. That's it. Who was part of the Jekyll Island meeting that resulted yeah. eventually in the creation of the Federal Reserve? Well, of course, he was uh, the uh, the father-in-law of uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. And of course, the Aldriches married in with the Rockefellers, and we see the the Vanderbilts and the Astors and all of these types of robber baron families ultimately marrying in with one another and forming that that sort of core of the American oligarchy. And it's a similar process in in, uh, pretty much every other nation on earth. What are the chances of the public becoming sufficiently aware where they can stop this if they want to and perhaps install the kinds of systems we think we have rather than the illusions that we seem to have. Is there any chance we're going to do that? And you've only got about 10 seconds to answer. Well, I think there is a chance. And uh, more importantly, perhaps, people like Zbigniew Brzezinski and others also think there is a chance. And he's uh, talked about that at length in recent years, talking about how he's worried about this political awakening that's taking place. So I think Mm -hmm. there is a chance. But again, it's only a chance unless we actually push it through to its conclusion. All right, James, thanks very much. Fascinating information. Look forward to talking to you again uh, next week. In the meantime, we got to go, folks. We're out of time. want to thank you all for listening. Hope you'll tune in again tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank the producer, and James. Bye-bye. all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad. In my dreams, 
denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
saints, the world is in turmoil. Most just do not realize it, but we are in the time of the end. And that's the time before Messiah's glorious return. So it's time to get out of sin, the world, and look to the holy city. Look to the one who suffered and died for you. Please make this choice tonight. If you need help after this program, call me. I'll pray for you or with you. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, and or message. The phone number, of course, is 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682. And an emergency, my cell phone number is 316 619 you know, you can always find updates with the breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address, at our, which is at our blog, which is very simply prophecyhour.com. That's prophecyhour.com. Of course, you got to put the www thing in it, but if you Google prophecyhour.com, I'm sure you will find our website. Anyway, we are a national satellite radio program, and please pray about supporting airtime because airtime does cost, and as you know, we don't sell anything on this program, and so we need your kind donations to keep us going. Okay, our program archives, that's what you need to know. Well, those can be found at prophecyhour.com. Over there also, in the main column, you'll see breaking news. I keep that going pretty much for a lot of it is what you'd call secular news, things that you need to know about. I believe all news is related to Bible prophecy, but you'll find a lot of the breaking news over there and articles about Bible prophecy. When I see a good article, I'll post it there. You can sign up for those emails uh, on the right. Uh, if you scroll down, it says PNS. You can subscribe there, and you'll get alert every time one of those are sent out. Or you can just simply go to the blog site a couple times a day and have a look. Now, the blog site is very smartphone-friendly, and also uh, our radio archives. If you scroll, just look right over there on the right, there's a place that says End Time Radio Archives, and that'll lead you to branch.automatic.com. Over there, you can find an app for your Android or for your iPhone. And so go over there, get you an app, and as I realize that at least 50% of the people that listen to radio nowadays, I hear are listening on their smartphones. Okay, now a prayer, and uh, we'll get right to the program. But one other thing I want to challenge you to do is share these radio programs with others. Help us get out there, get the word out there, and also that will bring support for the Wichita Mission Church. Okay, now a prayer will bring on a nice guest and see what he has to say. Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name I pray. Father, I pray the radio goes according to your will and not mine, and nor our guests will. Because, Father, you're the only one that knows what the truth is. You're the only one that knows how to really do radio. We don't know how to do anything, and we can't do anything without you. So we ask that you give us the what to go out on radio, but give everybody out there ears and wish to hear the truth. So please, Father, bless this program tonight. Amen and amen. Well, our guest tonight is Daniel Holdings. He's a former businessman and award-winning public speaker. He also has turned author. This native Californian often jokes that he just woke up from a few years ago. In doing so, he experienced a significant paradigm shift in his thinking. And that he has awakened has made him deeply aware of the intimate and dangerous transition that is about to be thrust onto the United States and the world. Events have brought mankind to the pinnacle of history, whether it's a certain global financial collapse, 
a sun going wild, UFOs, interloping planet in our solar system, increased interdimensional and demonic activity, or Israel being at the center of World War III. Daniel has joined the many voices in the warning of the approaching danger. This is not a simple conspiracy theory or alarmism. He's formed his opinions based on facts, however uncomfortable those facts may be. He has written three books. His they are called Three Days in the Belly of the Beast, As the Darkness Falls, and Between the Veil. He says that these books, while fiction, have turned out uh, to be prophetic. He also is the host of the Hebrew Nation's radio program called Prepare the Way. I haven't ever heard him on radio, but we'll sure listen to him tonight. Welcome, Daniel. Are you there with me? Pastor Dan, thank you so much, brother, for having me on tonight. It's an honor, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, amen. Uh, so, brother, uh, how long have you been on the Hebrew Nation? Uh, I haven't been on Hebrew Nation, but probably two or three months now. Uh, I had another blog talk show, The Cutting Edge. I talked about much of the same things that you talk about these days. Uh, and I've also done, you know, lots of guest appearances on radio over the years. So, uh, but Hebrew Nation is a relatively new event. Okay, well, we'll have to check you out over there, and we encourage the listeners to do so. And also, your blog uh, spot is DanielHoldings.com, is it not? It is DanielHoldings.com is is my website. There are articles I post there from time to time. Uh, a couple of interesting articles are on there for your your your, your listeners' benefit, uh, and we can get into some of that tonight, I think, but pertinent to the discussion at hand, uh, I think that they'll find those things interesting. Amen. Well, I really liked, uh, the, I, well, I decided I, I wanted to talk to you about CERN, and I, most people are really unaware of all these things that are going on with it, and you went and wrote a wonderful article about it, but as I was at Hebrew Nations, uh, just before your article got posted, there was a, a girl over there that wrote one uh, also, and it really astonished me because she said something about seeing being. Um, why don't you take us into CERN? For the people, what is CERN? CERN is a European organization for nuclear research. And don't ask me why it's called CERN. Those are the initials of the previous uh, organization's name, and they just kept the initials, CERN. But CERN is a, a kind of a blanket organization uh, where these Physicists are doing the various things that physicists do. Now, more pertinent to your question, I think, though, is they are operating something on the Franco-Swiss border called the Large Hadron Collider. So what's the Large Hadron Collider? The Large Hadron Collider, folks, is the world's biggest machine. And I'm not kidding. It is huge, and it's buried 600 feet underground. In addition to that, it is in a, a circle form, and it, it, is, it covers about 27 kilometers, which is about 17 miles wide of this farmland uh, on the border of France and Geneva. Uh, up top, there are, there are several, uh, what they call, they call them L1, L2, L3. These are facilities that the, you can enter into uh, the, the various uh, elevators that will take you down to this, this uh, machine. 
Now, what, what the machine is, it's, a, it's basically this, Pastor Dan. It is a, they call it a bean tube, but it's, it's, it's basically this circular tube underground where they are running subatomic particles in, in parallel. And what they do is they take these, these beams of subatomic particles, they bring them into alignment, and they crash the particles together, thus making it an atom master. Well, the interesting thing is that in order to get the, the particles to go around in a circle, they have it in this, uh, they use magnets to bend the, the, the particles to go around in a circle, but the magnets get hot, and so they use a cryogenic system, a closed circuit, where they, they freeze these particles and these magnets at minus 231 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that is colder, folks, than the ex-planet Pluto on the outskirts of our solar system. That is mighty cold. So what they are doing down there, Pastor Dan, is research, apparently is what they say. Now, uh, you probably know this, but your audience may not. When they were operational two years ago, they were doing something. Uh, they were searching for what called the God particle or the Higgs boson. It is a, uh, a, set, a subatomic particle that they believe that they could see it. It would, it would confirm uh, some of their theories about why things uh, have mass. In other words, why things hold together. But it, isn't it interesting, Pastor Dan, that the Word tells us that the Father holds all things together by advance. Yeah, so they, were looking, they were looking for... Uh, the scientific reason for, for this. Now, in addition to that, they closed down that facility uh, in, in 2013 to revamp it, to make it more powerful. And their goal is to double the power that they were, that they were using back then. And it has just come back online this month in April of this year, uh, and they're not even up at full power. They are, they are, they are doing uh, calibrations and testing. But uh, Pastor Dan, even with these very beginning uh, experiments that they are doing, some of the things that they are are causing are just downright scary. I think. Yeah, amen. Let's let's talk about some of the more controversial things of it. And and like for instance, the the day that they fired it up, there was an earthquake in Nepal. Well, that was actually not only the day. That was the second time they fired up, Pastor Dan. It was at the exact moment they fired up. The exact, exact well, actually not when they fired up, but the exact moment when it hit its its highest. Power. Now, folks, you got to understand something. This is a mechanism, a machine that is buried deep underground. And it, these, these waves, this, this force that it causes, just travels through the earth. And it's no wonder that we're seeing that kind of thing. But you know what, Pastor Dan, your audience could be listening to us and go, okay, that's just coincidence. It just happened to, 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 to go off on that uh, at the same time. Well, when they, when they first cranked it up last week, they cranked it up, and they were reporting that they hit, I think it was 5 TEV. TEV stands for trillion, get this, folks, it stands for trillion electron volts. That's the power 
that they're putting through this thing. Now, the hit fives have, at least they said they did, but they cut off the chart because this information is piped all throughout the world. So they cut off the chart, and our sources say that it really looks like they hit at least 10 tabs, which is unbelievable because if you understand that the last uh, time they were doing experiments, they didn't go any stronger than 6 tabs. When you, when you start looking at this kind of power, it, it can only, in the subatomic realm, it can only have repercussions in the real world that we see. But when they right. did that, uh, when they did that, they captured uh, via SOHO A and SOHO B. Those are satellites that uh, rotate around the sun, and they also look back at the Earth to uh, monitor the magnetosphere. That's the invisible shield around the Earth to protect us from sun rays and radiation. Well, that magnetosphere, at the very same time they cranked it up, and during for the duration of that uh, experiment, was being battered like it was being hit with a baseball bat. And then when the experiment stopped, it went back to normal. So you have two things. You have that evidence last week, and then the Nepal earthquake would just happen a few days ago. I mean, it's unbelievable what this thing can do. Well, some of the other reports I've seen and, and some of the things that I've been looking at is, is like what they're trying to do. Are they, you know, with this... Uh, We'll let you tell us about the goddess Shiva that's outside, but um, point being, folks, these folks, I heard, uh, and in fact, there was an article by one somebody that's on your Hebrew Nation radio, um, she said that as they were shutting it down the last time, that they saw other, they saw beings from another dimension uh, in it as they were shutting it down. Um, there's a lot of talk about how these people are trying to open a portal or maybe, uh, if you will, stargate to another dimension. And, you know, this may be, see what, who knows? Some people we were speculating this could be a portal to the bottomless pit or to, you know, to let d demonic things into our world. Now, what's amazing, did you see the uh, uh, video or happen to uh, uh, with the people doing this really weird dance outside of uh, CERN? No, I hadn't seen that. There's a video, because I went exploring last night, so I'd be up on the subject to talk to you. And I came across a video I had never seen before. And sometime uh, just recently, before they, oh, they opened it up, in the, the platform area in front of CERN, they have what they called an opera. And they did this strange dance. Um, these men and a woman did this strange dance that looked like, some kind of a tribal dance um, that you would be, you know, conjuring up other gods, something like if they were, and, I, and not, like if you might see black men doing in an African nation, you know, what I'm talking about, um, swinging their arms around and doing that. And, but these, these, these men were doing it. They were fully dressed. They were dressed as CERN operators and had on CERN hard hats. And they were doing this weird dance in front of the portal. Now, to me, that's a little weird. What do you think? Well, that's Dan, we, we need to understand something about CERN. These scientists are agnostics or they're atheists, at least they proclaim to be, but they are very spiritual. They are very religious, but their religion is not your and my religion. Their religion is science, and they truly believe 
that there is, in fact, uh, a parallel. The, the, things, the, the physicists are actually saying this: that there are parallel dimensions and and uh, interdimensions that we are going to be able to see, that we hope to see. So this is what they're trying to do. Now, when you couple that with the symbology that is just enveloped in CERN, you mentioned one thing, the goddess Shiva that stands outside the main door of the facility, then there is this undertone of a religious mind. But, you know, I, I, you said something about interdimensional beings, and, and I need to go back for just one second. In, in my book, uh, I, I wrote my book, Three Days in the Belly of Beast, it, it has to do with the Large Hadron Collider. It's a fiction book. And somebody ran that book, as you know, Pastor Dan, they ran it in the Torah Code. They found it in the Torah Code, along with some of my name and some of the storylines in that book. The storylines have to do with CERN, and that befuddled me. I wondered why that was so important to the Lord that he put that in the Torah Code. Well, it, it comes it come about that after that came out, another person sent me an article, and I think I told you this off the air, he sent me an article from an Austrian newspaper about the day that they ended up shutting down CERN uh, un, uh, in an unscheduled shutdown. And this article was from a mainstream Austrian newspaper, it was in German, I had it translated, and the article said, on the front page, said that they saw something on their computer screen some interdimensional being on the computer screen. And it scared them so bad that they shut it down. And they came up with this story about there was a, a problem with the bean tubes or whatever the case may be. Now, the thing is, they squelched that, that, uh, that, that article or that story, and they pulled all those papers. It wasn't even in circulation for half a day, and they pulled all those papers. I just happened to, to get one from somebody that got it before they pulled it. Now, right. That was back in 2009. Pastor Dan, they have been looking for stuff like that since way back then. When you have physicists, now keep in mind, people, these are not just some nuts, right? They, they are, let me, let me go back and tell you that the LHC, as I said, was the, is the world's biggest machine. It costs billions and billions and billions of dollars to build and to run and to upgrade for that matter. There's a hundred different countries involved in this project, and over 10,000 scientists involved in this project. These are all big brain people, Pastor Dan. These aren't loons, right? These aren't French people. These people are supposed to be the smartest people on the planet, in other words. And, and they are fixated on interdimensional beings and parallel universes. Now, that should make all of us go, what? Yeah. There was a... There was a, a there was a physicist from CERN that came out uh, most recently, just last month, and he stunned the world, and he said that CERN does, and he's, he's on the project. He's one of the head guys. We don't know what the heck we're doing. We need to take a step back and consider the consequences of our actions. That's, that's a CERN guy on the project. Really? Even Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking the, the, the preeminent physicist of really? our time, has, although he didn't have any problems with CERN during the first experiments back uh, 2013 and before, he has serious problems with, uh, with the uh, facility now and, and their experiments because what he has said is that they are putting the Earth in jeopardy. Now, 
That just blows my mind. These people are in the know. They know what's going on, and they are very concerned at what's going on. So, okay, that's just physics, Pastor Dan. That's, that's just science, right? Right, right. How, however, you mentioned something. When we, when we take a hard look at what uh, they are doing and who they are and what the belief system is, I already said that it's a, uh, a quasi-religious you know, belief. They right. have, the, in a statue, the Hindu god Shiva at the front of the facility. Folks, if you don't know who Shiva is, Shiva is the destroyer of worlds, is, it, is its title. And it's, what it does is it, 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 mythos is it destroys worlds and it remakes them in its own image. Now, right. Pastor Dan, you take everything we just covered. And, and that, then you just tell me that they did this, this, this weird kind of religious supernatural dance in front of this facility. Yeah. My friends, we are, are toying with, or not we, they, they are toying with things they do not understand, and it's not only going to come back to bite them, I dare say it will come back to bite all of us. Okay, let me break in. We're, we got less than a minute before break, and, and we can come back talk a little more about this and some other things. But um, what's your, give them your website, please, real quick. Sure, it's DanielHoldings.com, www.DanielHoldingsWithanS.com. Okay, and can you find your books over there? That's right, and you know, I, I'm reminisced. Uh, there's a, a package special on my books. If you want all my books, there's a package on there. You get 5% off from Pastor Dan because I know money's tight and your audience is important. If you order those books on my website, I will give your, your audience an additional 10% off. So it'll be a total of 50% off the full package. Uh, but you okay. have to tell me in the, the PayPal directions that you, you heard me on Pastor Dan's show. Okay, well, we got to go. We'll be back in three minutes. Terrific. Dan will be right back. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one of four. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Pastor Dan Catlin, and you're listening to Messiah's Branch Prophecy Hour on the American Voice Radio Network. Folks, please remember to pray tonight about a donation for our work with the homeless and poor from our mission church in Wichita, Kansas. Well, of course, the homeless are poor, but we're also talking about the poor people that come to us from all around the city looking for things like clothing, food, Bibles. They're looking for the gospel. They're looking for miracles. They're looking for first aid. There's so many things that they come looking for. So it's not just some old homeless person that we're taking care of pushing a buggy. In fact, that's not really the picture of most homeless people, nor the drunken bum on the street corner. That's not a picture of a homeless person. We're living in an economy where uh, moms, dads, and, and family are living in the street. So these people don't fit that old-time picture that you have of the homeless and poor. This is a much different thing. They're just like you and me. In fact, I hear that about every uh, middle-class American, so to speak, is only a couple of paychecks away from losing their house and losing where they live. So pray about it. Why do so many people come to us for help? Why are we different? Well, love, that's the first answer. And then we treat them as family. 
Um, we give them relationships. By giving relationships, we're able to help them. We get on a one-to-one basis with them. And second, and beyond that, we don't have any set guidelines like, guidelines like programs. The only programs I have are radio programs. And notice I do call this programs and not shows. Shows are something that people uh, do to put on a show. Um, entertainment. Well, you know what? I'm here to educate you. We're here to educate you, to help you. And so it is called a program. Anyway, people just walk in the door and they ask for help, and that is the rule. And if we don't have the way to fill the need, well, then we try and pray it in. Uh, We're not always successful, but a large percentage of the time we are. This is why even the agencies tell their employees about the Potter's Little Mission Church. You see, when their guidelines stop them from helping, they send people to us. People who have millions of dollars in their budget send people to a place that, what, really has no budget? We are the very last hope for so many, and we're all responsible to care one for another, as we are our brother's keepers. All donations, no matter what size, helps, and the Potter notices all donations that come from where? Your heart. You can donate online or by mailing a check or money order, and you can find all this information at prophecyhour.com, prophecyhour.com, or simply call me at 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682. And now we're talking about the Haldrian Collider, which I think can open up a, a portal to another dimension. In fact, it could rip the fabric of the planet. But we're talking with Daniel Holdings about that. He's an author, speaker, researcher, and radio talk show host on the Hebrew Nation. Are you still with me, Daniel? I'm here, Pastor Dan, and thank you again for having me. Yeah, amen. Well, you know, some of the the effects that this uh, collider could have, um, am I wrong in saying this, um, could actually cause some of the the effects that we see in the Book of Revelation, like where the uh, you know the Earth gets scorched and so on and so forth. What do you think? Well, you know that that is an interesting thing. You know, you you look at so many things in prophecy, and you wonder how these things could happen. Of course, people have written book after book about this over the years, uh, and one of the books that is probably the best known. Uh, that I, I read when I was uh, just, in fact, I wasn't even a believer then. I thought it was science fiction with the late great planet Earth that talked about all this interesting stuff. But even back then, Pastor Dan, we didn't have the science. We didn't have the technology that we have now. You mentioned that you thought this was a stargate or a portal that is opening up a gateway to another dimension. And it is, in fact, one of the things I talk about in my book, because in that book, in Three Days in the Belly of the Belly of the Beast, uh, the, the main character is indeed trying to do that. Remember I said that I wondered why you know, the father thought it was so important to put it in, into the Torah code. What Bryce Cooper, the hero, does, he wasn't a hero back then, but what he does is he is trying to bridge this gap between the seen world the 3D world that we live in, and this other dimension. And, you know, the Word gave me this revelation about how things are laid out uh, in, in our own world, and I, I relate that in, in that book. But I took that, that thought process and, and built this book on it. But lo and behold, when I 
took a step back and began to see all these things that were happening after I wrote the book, they are, in fact, Pastor Dan, trying to open up a gateway to the supernatural is what I call it. Uh, yeah. And somebody told me, actually this was, Inquilla told me this, he said, he said, Daniel, he said, if you think about the Large Hadron Collider as a main lock, and if you can unlock a main lock, you can unlock all the other locks in a, in a, in a system. Well, Pastor Dan, that is exactly what they are trying to do. So the question yeah. that we have to ask ourselves is a portal to where? See, they think that they're going to see a parallel universe or, or uh, an adjoining dimension. But where, indeed, are they trying to open up a doorway to? See, that's the question. They don't even understand this because they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the Father. They don't believe in the God of creation, right? They don't believe him. So, so they, they they're don't just going believe to... in the devil. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. They're seeing, and remember, the word says that Lucifer masquerades as an angel of light, right? So they see this being on their screen, and it's it's lit up, and it's an entity, and they go, oh, wow, gee, let's see if we can talk to him. They have no idea that they are talking to a demon. They have no idea that they want to open up the very gates of the abyss. Yeah. Now that, yeah, absolutely. That should make all of us. That make all of us. You know, uh, a few years ago, my friend Stan Johnson at the Prophecy Club did a, a program, and he did a DVD on it. And it was it was good, it, but there was some more information out there. But you know, he talked about he called it Stargate wormholes in the bottomless pit, and we talked mm-hmm. about it. And you know, while I was convinced that this was important, you know, there just wasn't as much information as there is out there right now. But again, I'll, I'll, I'll refer back to that. After I spoke with you yesterday, um, I went and did some more research. And uh, you know what? I was really getting, uh, I, for lack of a better word, kind of weirded out by the time I got done looking at all everything I looked at last night. And yeah. uh, uh, because it's, re- it's reality, you understand what I'm saying? That's what weirded me out, is that it's reality. I, I saw a way in this portal that, hey, wait a minute, that there's a way that the bottomless pit could possibly be, or these de- demons from another dimension could all of a sudden be all over our planet. You know what I mean? This yeah. is a, a portal for the, for the devil to come through. You know? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, Yeshua went down. It said the word says that Yeshua went down, and he stole the keys of hell and death. Right? People say, you know, he set us free from from sin. Right? That's not true. It says he stole the keys of hell and death. Right? So that we don't have to die eternally. Right? <laughs> but there were the point is that there are keys to hell. Right? Now, where else are there keys? Think back to your eschatological, your eschatological framework, right? Think back to Revelation. Where else do you see keys in the Bible? Well, I mean, you see the key of David. Well, that's true, but you see, the Bible says that the abyss has keys, well, and right, at the end yeah. of the age, at the end of the age, that they're let. They're let out, that they get these keys yeah, and they're, they're let out. Let out. 
Well, who knows? Are, look, 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 and I'm going to jump ahead of you on this. I know that's where you're going. Well, who's to say that that the father isn't allowing this to allow these this to be opened up? You know, because he allows well, allows yeah. or disallows everything. Well, that's true, and he's not caught off guard or surprised by anything that's going on. But for, for that's the father. But for their motivation, right? For the enemy's motivation. He thinks that he can usurp the father's plan if he just kind of moves ahead a little bit and gets the keys and starts wreaking havoc over the world. And he's using these scientists who think they're so smart that they can do whatever they want to do. And I'm going to use this phrase, that they can do whatever they set their mind to do. Now, where do we remember hearing that phrase in the words before? But oh, they, gee, we I don't know. It is the Tower of Babel, and that is exactly what Elohim said. You know, we don't stop them, they'll do whatever they set their mind to do, and, and so God put a stop to it. And, and these people think that they can do whatever they set their mind to do, and they're pur- purposing to do that, but they are playing with fire. They have no idea who they are messing with, because as you said, they don't believe in the devil, right? That's just some religious stuff that they don't even, it's not scientific, right? <laughs> but they were playing right into his hand. Yeah, we're going to find out how scientific it is. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm serious. You know, any way you look at it, even if you took this off of a religious scale, so to speak, and you looked at it, you know, they could blow a hole, they could blow the planet up, you know, they've already caused an earthquake, clearly. Um, you know, they could tear a hole in the, the outer atmosphere so that we would get burnt up. And they could lead, just because they see beings from someplace else, doesn't mean they're going to come over here and just be peaceful, you know. Um, I mean, oh, they're going to be benevolent. Let's let them in, right? Okay. Next story. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, really, you know, uh, what, they, they have this, guys, they, which brings me, what is this book? book? We are might as well now. I want to hear about the, this for a second. Um, since you're working on a new nonfiction book called Mad Scientists and Other Wackadoos, are you going to address these people in this? Well, you know, uh, yeah, well, that's only one of the things uh, that, that are going to be in that book. But, you know, the... And CERN is, is this whole different thing, this, you know, physics and all that stuff. It's this quantum physics and theoretical physics. It's all this crazy stuff that they do. But we have practical, theoretical things that are going on in our world today, Pastor Dan, that, that are affecting our own lives. You know, yeah. they are messing with, geneticists are messing with our genome. They are trying to change our DNA. And if you don't believe me, if you have a daughter that is uh, between the age of, I don't know, let's say 18 to, well, a newborn, right, there is a vaccine that they came out with just uh, about three or four years ago. I forget the name of it. I'm just talking off the top of my head. This vaccine, it comes in four different shots, is designed to vaccinate some, uh, a woman from cervical cancer, right? That's what its right. purpose is. I know the shot. But in, but in order to do that, they have to change your child's DNA. If you read the fine print, they are changing your kid's DNA. 
the things that we eat today, GMO foods, maybe the, the chemtrails that we see, these things are changing our DNA. So they are just tinkering with the genome. Now, if that wasn't weird enough, there is um, there have been reports of late, there was just last week, the Chinese have admitted that they are changing the DNA in an embryo. That they're changing a baby's DNA to make it like you want it to be even before it's born. Now, that is crazy. But that is not as crazy as the reports of using the DNA from three people to make a baby. Right. That, that's crazy. That, that report just came out about two, two, two months ago. And then there's also a report, there's one more, there's also a report where they're using the DNA from two people of the same sex to make a baby. Really? Now, Pat? Yeah. Okay. I got to say something. Okay, let's go with this. Number one, you know, we find one of the very first principles, or I call it a law. You can call it what you want. It, it's in, so it's in, it's in the Torah, so we can call it Torah, which is the teachings. You know, in Genesis, in the very first, when he talks about the creation of the world, he's, uh, the, it, it talks about everything after its own kind, everything after its own kind, and it was good. You know, and it's and it goes on and on about that, and then you get up to Genesis six, and you see everything's not after its own kind. The DNA was messed up because of the the fallen angels that came down, and that's really why the world was destroyed um, because of all the evilness that they brought. In fact, Noah was considered uh, good in his generations, meaning that he didn't have an uh, not an alien, but a, a fallen angel in a woodpile. He had clean generation. So messing with DNA, that's the point. It's against the Father. All of these that abominations is, are, Go ahead. That is exactly right. If you look at the original language, it says that his, his genes were He was genetically pure. He didn't have Nephilim DNA in his lineage. So therefore, because this is, why is this important? Okay, this is crazy stuff, right? We're just talking crazy stuff. I don't know, folks, if you go to Genesis 6, you'll see it for yourself, right? Now, if you're the devil, if you were the devil and you want, you knew that your time was short, I mean, if it's 5,000 years, it's still short to him in eternity. Now, if you were the devil and you knew your time was short, would you not try to intercept the birth of Messiah by corrupting the genome? Yeah, amen. Because remember... David's DNA goes all the way back to Noah, and it goes all the way up to the Messiah. So if they could have corrupted the genome way back there, we would not have Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeah, not amen. like he is. Amen. So there is, there is a, so what are they doing now, Daniel? Well, they, look, I didn't say it. Yeshua said it in Matthew 24. He said, when, when you see these things happen, it will be as in the days of Noah. Does that mean that it's going to flood, that people were, were sinning and they were doing all this? Well, yeah, they were sinning. We're still sinning. They're still sinning. That's not what he was talking about. Pastor Dan, he's talking about this stuff. He's talking about what you just said. When we would see science begin to try to corrupt our DNA and do all this other stuff, and folks, I hate to tell you, but I think, I don't know, I don't have any way to prove this, but I think that this is Nephilim technology. 
This, they got this technology from fallen angels, and we were just, Pastor Dan, we're doing the whole thing again, and, uh, and sometimes mankind drives me crazy because we are falling right into their trap. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they've got it to accept, you know, for, we were, you know, uh, my last program today, I was talking with a, a guy who wrote the book, Crimes of the Educators, and it was talking about how they they corrupted the teachings of the children and getting them to where they're at now, away from Judeo-Christian teaching. And that actually has led to why all this is acceptable. And and so it's been going on a long time, but now it's all acceptable. I mean, the millennium, or I guess you call them millennials, don't you, the children, you know, they don't know enough about this because they don't have the right and wrong teaching in them, and so they don't care, you know, and people don't care. And so it's right there. It's predominant. All these abominations, you realize what's going to happen if they do same-sex marriage in this country by the Supreme Court. It's going to tear this country apart. Um, and so we're in for it. I mean, you know, we're here. There's the point. We have arrived. Everybody keeps waiting until oh, when the end times. The end times are here. Don't you believe, brother? I think we've arrived. Oh, that, no, we we are so far into the birth pains right now, folks. If you don't understand that we are in the birth phase, that, that, that the, the the distance between those pains are increasing, then you're not paying attention because the, it, it is like Pastor Dan. I don't have to tell you. I go to the news and I cannot keep up with it, and I. I, I keep up with the news. I mean, it's what I do. I can't follow it fast enough because it's just one thing after another thing after hmm. another thing. You know, you were talking about um, uh, DNA. You were, this is the other thing that, that you know, it says that, that they corrupted all of flesh, right? That's what it says right. in Genesis. Now, interestingly enough, one of the other things in that book that I'm working on are um, hybrids and uh, transhumanism. They are mixing, you're, you're, oh, you're right, it's, the word says that everything is made after its kind. But we think, we're, we as being human beings, think we're so smart, they are mixing the DNA of creatures that do not belong together. Uh, so you get dogs that are glowing green because they mix them with jellyfish. You, you have pigs that have noses on them. I, it's just crazy stuff that they're doing. And people, people don't even understand what they're doing. They just go back, they go to work. And, but, you know, we see this technology, and we see these things happening past the end, and there's this technological element of things that are going crazy. But, brother, I am telling you, true to the name of the, the second book, the title that the Lord gave me, As the Darkness Falls, darkness is falling on our world. And there is a spiritual element to what is going on here. And those people that you saw doing that dance in front of CERN, this is the spiritual element of things. I mean, you, you want to hear something crazy. When did all this start, Daniel? I mean, you're just talking crazy. It is crazy stuff, right? Well, you know all that talk, Pastor Dan, about 2012 and December 24 was going to be in the world, and I can't, right. I can't say no. Look, they, they don't get to pick the end of the world. <laughs> Yahweh is in charge, and they don't get to pick the end of the world. But I said at the same time, this is a different year. Things are happening here that you cannot see. And in 2012, there were uh, these Mayan, I'm not making this stuff up, there were these Mayan priests 
that came to the United States. There were 13 of them with 13 crystal skulls. I'm not making it up. Go back and read it. It's on the Internet. You'll find it for yourself. It was, it was widely publicized because the news was carrying this kind of thing. And they were doing a ceremony at key places throughout the United States to what? To open up portals. portals. That's what their stated goals were. They stopped in St. Louis. Why, well, that's not far from Ferguson. And they said all across the country. They walked across the country, and they, they were doing a ceremony. The very last place that they did this ceremony before they went back down to the Mayan temple down in Mexico, the City of Angels in Los Angeles to open up portals. And it wasn't very long after that. Okay, nothing happened. They didn't do anything. Folks, if you look back at the turmoil that's turmoil that started in our nation and in the world, I dare say, you have to look back to 2012 because something happened and darkness started falling. And you can say that it's because of the geopolitical situation. You can say it's because of our president. You can say it's because of politics. You can say it's because uh, the Republicans are never going to get done. Man, you can say whatever you want to say. The fact is that it's a spiritual issue. And when you combine that with the technology that is going on today, Pastor Dan, you hit it right on the head. These are, in fact, the end times. This is the end of the age. We are in the birth pains. And I dare say that those things are ramping up, and before the end of the year, you're going to see things that are going to, that's going to make your head spin. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, one of the things that you just barely brushed on was transhumanism, you know, and, the and you know, the singularity of, of our interaction with machines. Um, there's a, a whole lot of things that uh, actually I've been looking for somebody to talk to uh, with about it, um, and you may just be that person. Um, we, uh, we ought to do a program on all that, um, some of that and other technology things, but... Um, I, I do appreciate you being on with me. Um, tell us a, a little more about your website and your books. you got about two minutes or a minute and a half to give final thoughts, and uh, then we'll say okay till next time. We'll do it again. Okay. Uh, thank you, Pastor Dan. The, the website is danielholdings.com. That's www.danielholdings. And I'm dead serious, folks. If you order a package on my website, uh, it, it already has a 5% discount because you're a, a, a Pastor Dan listener. I will give you another 10% for a total of 15% on that site. Uh, but you have to order from my website. I don't have any control over Amazon or any place else. Uh, I can only do what I can do on my website. Uh, and if you, if you, in the PayPal directions, if you tell me that you heard about me on Pastor Dan's show or you send me an email to the contact page, I will, in fact, uh, reverse the charges and give it to you as a rebate or refund off of your order. On that, on that website, you'll also find news. You'll find previous uh, interviews that I've had or shows that I've done, that kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of good information. But more importantly, just like uh, Pastor Dan's site, and I, I appreciate you so much and the things that you do uh, for the They don't even understand what you do. Because I know it takes, I, I know what it takes me. I know it takes you hours and hours and hours to do what you do. And so I so much appreciate you. Like Pastor Dan's website, there's a bunch of good stuff on there for you to uh, to, to to think about and to, to to see. There's background on my books. There's uh, interesting videos and all kinds of stuff. So feel free to, to go there. Now, as far as my 
my closing thoughts. Folks, this is not the time to be playing church. I'm not talking bad about church. I'm not talking bad about any one place. What I'm telling, telling you is this is the time to make sure that you are on your face before the Lord and that you are talking Amen. to him honestly, that we are repenting on a regular basis, not once, on a regular basis, that we are transparent with him, that we are tuned to his voice, that when he says go left or go right, we know his voice. Yeshua said, my sheep mouth know my voice, and they, another they will not follow. This is a time when we need to know his voice because it is getting very, very dangerous. Okay, amen. i got to get you out of here, brother. I've only got a minute left myself. So you be blessed, and we'll talk again, I'm sure. We'll stay in contact. Thank you, Pat. All right, Thanks. be blessed. Thanks for being on. Well, folks, that was Daniel Holdings. Go over and check his site out. We've got a lot of good stuff. We'll get him back on again. And send him an email. Tell him you like the program. We must remember there is only one God. He is your father. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son is Yeshua, Hamashiach. He gave his life for repentant sins. He rose after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And through him, and only through him, is the way to the Father. Remember, always, always, always be a blessing to others. Pray about supporting Wichita Mission Church or Radio Airtime, which is both about the same thing. Pray about it. Lord our God, Father, King Universe, asking Yeshua HaMashiach's name, that the Father blesses and keeps you, and his face shines upon you, and his grace is to you, and gives you peace. Until next Thursday, this is Pastor Dan saying goodbye and shalom. You've just heard the Messiah's Branch broadcast featuring Pastor Dan. To contact Dan on the Internet, go to messiahsbranch.org. To write to Dan, send a note to Messiah's Branch, 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Tune in next time for Messiah's Branch. running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316 316- 316-619-4886. Is your PSA count high? Half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the Prostate Kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate gland. 
qualify the carry herbs for the prostate kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the prostate kit and empower yourself. Toll free 866-229-3663 or international callers 704-875-8010. That's toll free 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Greeks thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. resident herbalist Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. Ooh, we got some rain here in the Carolinas. And uh but it's it was beautiful up until, you know, about an hour ago. Got rain. But we're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. So a magical engineer Frank and I are ready to roll. And thanks for joining us on American Voice Radio. We got a great show. We're gonna be talking about hmm, the doctoring of healthcare. And 
literal senses. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, also, we're going to be talking about some legends, um, maybe how to make your tinctures alcohol-free if that's what you want to do. Uh, we got lots of things out here to talk about just to empower you, and that's what we're going to do. But we have a quack report, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We want to be say a big salute and simplify to all our righteous men and women in uniform, and I'm lifting all of America up in prayer. And, of course, today started the National Prayer Day, uh, kicked off by the wonderful people in Australia. They're praying for America and lifting us up in prayer and fasting. So I hope you got an opportunity to say some prayers today for this great nation, to be one nation under God once again, and, of course, bring back the blessings of the Lord instead of the chaos, right? I'm all ready for some blessings, aren't you? So we got to mind the time and seek Lord's face, hit the knees because uh, we ask and we don't uh, we we don't ask we don't get and of course you know, the prayers of the faithful event uh, does um, avail much so let's uh, let's get to getting on the prayer there and without further ado let's do the crack report. <laughs> okay, according to some uh, new research, it says eating sugar may fuel some cravings, uh, but it also quiets stress, according to this. Um, If you eat some sugar, it can kind of tone down the stress signals in your brain. Um, Most people, you know, go for that comfort food anyway when they're stressed out. But they say sweets can be kind of habit-forming and it may be hard to break, but also this study suggests it may help you cope better. So in a two-week experiment, they had uh, some women drink, 19 women, some uh, drank beverages that were sweetened with natural sugar and some with aspartame and some with none, no sweetener. And the researchers did um, an MRI of their brains to see how uh, the brain was being affected. And, of course, um, the, the brain uh, showed the most um, action and, um, and uh, impulses when the person had the sugar in their beverage. So the results suggest sugar can have uh, some sort of interruption of the normal response to stress. It's in the hippocampus region region of the brain. Uh, Apparently, it limits uh, the production of stress hormones cortisol, according to the uh, lead author, Kevin Legario. Uh, He's a nutritional researcher at the University of California. So um, so anyway, you know, they're thinking that Although sugar may be habit-forming, yeah, don't become a sugar-holic just to cope with stress. There's other things you can do, like valerian root. All right, let's uh, move along here. Next up is um, they said birth control pills and BPA may be causing fish to become infertile. They said some industrial chemicals can cause the infertility of fish down to the fourth generation. So the plastic chemicals, the bisphenol A or BPA as they call it, could be a key ingredient along with human birth control pills that get into the water supply. Uh, This was a study conducted researchers at the U.S. uh, Geological Survey, and their results were published in the Journal of Scientific Reports. They say certain pollutants can induce changes that are passed on to the offspring and can cause development disorders in about 30% and also decrease the infertility compared to fish that were not exposed. There you go. And last but not least in the crack report, this is an interesting story. I was just fascinated. We're going to the U.K., where this happened. I'll mark that U.K. because I'll forget later. Um, 
basically there's a man that has a unique uh, uh, condition, let's put it that way, in his brain, words, when he, when he hears words or sounds, he can taste them. So his brain converts sound into a taste. Isn't that odd? So like he said, tomato ketchup, salty ham, elastic bands, and a Bakewell tarts are just four of the many flavors that James Wanterton tastes during uh, talking with people. So um, he, uh, he was interviewed, and uh, he says sometimes he tastes the Cadbury's fruit and nut chocolate bar when he talks to people, um, uh, when he talks, especially when he talks to a girl called Kate. He says people have different tastes, too, just being in their presence person has a different taste so um uh this this girl kate tastes like a creamy cadbury fruit and nut chocolate bar hmm anyway he has this rare condition that has been finally diagnosed by modern medicine he has a condition called synesthesia which is a um it means that you can taste uh your taste and hearing senses don't operate independently in your brain. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so every day, every word, every sound has a distinctive flavor for a person with which has synesthesia. So uh, anyway, so I, I, words uh, uh, and sounds go blink, 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 apparently, in his mouth, just like hot rocks do, according to him. Um, he says some tastes are very quick, but others can last for hours. Um, and it's very distracting. He had this since childhood, and it would really be a problem in, in school because um, he could hear kids when during, you know, standardized tests. He could hear kids with their erasers, with their pencils, and all those sounds had a taste, and it distracted him from his exams. So um, uh, apparently he has inherited this condition from his mother's side of the family, um, and uh uh, it's 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 a condition that affects 4% of the population. I had no idea. So usually takes the form um, of, uh, well, when you're small, he says, you know, his mom. He prefers the taste. Of- okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.